heavy lifting. Yeah. Back at back in uh, St. Louis, they do it there in the studio. But since I'm a contractor, uh, I do it all myself. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. Self-taught? Have you watched YouTube yeah. videos? Yeah. Well, yeah. Online. Yeah. Yeah. Self-taught via our hive mind, right? Yeah. Comes uh, in handy. I mean, that's one of the beautiful things about YouTube is whatever you want to do, you can learn how to do it. Exactly. There's no barrier of entry anymore. That's right. I mean, it, all the information is out online. And I'm not a big proponent of the internet. I mean, I kind of see the dangers of it. And I, I've been in the process in the last couple of years of actually withdrawing from it, right? So it's a weird pinch for me since I'm actively on it as well. But um, the one, one of the, well, not the one, but one of the beauties of the internet is access to information, right? I mean, we really all can be Renaissance men in this age because if we don't even know what that word means, <laughs> we can look it up it's it's amazing so that's kind yeah. of an interesting stance where you are on youtube you are very you're a public figure in front of your church yeah. to kind of want to pull away from that yeah it's uh, an interesting stance it is you know i did the exact uh i've done a 180 because i used to be full bore i mean i i'm the generation that was right there at the cutting edge with facebook right it was going from uh you know reserved for college students to open to the whole world right around the time i was in college and coming out. So um, I've, I'm that first wave of, of people who are living online um, in that regard. So I was pulled into Facebook. That's my generation thing. And then Instagram, I love photography and video. And so that was a natural thing to get involved in. And I never did the Twitter thing very much, but I threw it out there just to have that social media thing going and then LinkedIn. And then I tried, I did like five TikToks. I was okay. I've done this. This is crazy. Um, and then YouTube, of course. And I've, I've done a variety of things on YouTube, starting off um, actually for the Chamber of Commerce in Ferndale doing some vlog-type style work. But And so I was – what you end up happening, and you probably know this as well, is you get caught up sort of in, in trying to read the algorithm, and you get caught up in the, the, uh, the game of it, the hustle. And uh, as a pastor, I identified for years, like, this is not healthy for me. This is a problem for me. Um, and I kept justifying it, figuring out ways to live with it. And actually, it's really funny the way it worked because during COVID, as so many different, like we were just saying, so many different people have found different ways to react. And it's changing all of our lives as we've kind of pivoted in that moment. I actually was serving at St. Mark Ferndale from 2017 to 2020. COVID hit, everything shut down. We're all trying to figure out who we are, what we're doing. And we have two seminaries in our denomination, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. And the one I went to, my alma mater, mater is in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And they called me uh, and they said, hey, we'd, we'd like you to come out here and be a recruiter for us. Come work in admissions. It's like kind of a weird time in history to be bringing somebody on for admissions, isn't it? Well, no, exactly what you do is what we want. I was like, what do you mean what I do? I'm a pastor. Well, no, all your, all your extra stuff online, all that video stuff you're always playing around with, why don't you come do that for us and be an online admissions counselor? Create videos, take photos, be you know, create content, be a content creator for us. So I did that. I I took the call. Um, that's what we call it in the church. I'm not sure how familiar you or your audience is with that, but um, we call it a divine call from God as He's working through His people in the church. And and so I took a call to the seminary to do that. And I was out there for seven months when I ended up coming right back to to Ferndale for various reasons. But in that process, I was that's when I was dropping the online stuff. I was seeing, you know, well, at the same time, we were, you know, with the election going on, we had different things happening. We were seeing censorship, uh, Twitter, and all these different things. People were being banned from, you know, public figures being thrown off of these different social media services. And I was just like having a, a 
conscience problem with this, you know? So I bailed off and I, I complete told cold Turkey, just dropped off the internet altogether. Uh, even stopped making videos and, and doing that sort of thing. And I got back to the, the congregation and just started focusing on being a pastor the way I've, I intended to before I got sucked into the social media world. And it was great until I got uh, pressed with some cultural issues with our church sign. Some of the some of the real life issues, the you know, in the flesh, on the street in Ferndale things started popping up. And I wasn't even on Facebook anymore. I had no idea that there was this controversy going on on Facebook over our church sign. Guess I'm going back online to check some stuff out, and then I still I'm not on Facebook. The church is, but I'm not, and I don't push it too much right now. But yeah, YouTube is where my my content is, and then uh, Cross Defense is on uh, KFUO.org. It's actually a, a global radio station. It's the oldest continually operating AM radio station, uh, Christian radio station in the world. It's been there since you know. Right now we're doing podcasting, all this kind of stuff. KFUO, uh, which is the the radio station for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod was on the cutting edge of technology when that technology was you know, AM radio, where you, all the kids would sit around and tune in to the TV shows that, well, they were radio shows, right? And all that kind of stuff. So uh, we've always been doing that. And it started off at the seminary in St. Louis. And it was, you know, a professor up in the attic figured out a way to broadcast from the highest point in the <laughs> on campus. And it's, uh, it's been it's been going ever since, and it's been great. Uh, the Lutheran Hour is our, sort of our was our flagship program all these centuries or centuries, all these decades, um, and now we're just doing great content. And I'm privileged to uh, work with with the fine folks at KFUO, and my show is Cross Defense, and it's it started out sort of as an apologetic show, and I'm like the third or fourth host of it. I I didn't create the show or anything. In fact, I stepped into that show um, because of COVID, because uh, the 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 host at that time, who had been hosting for like 18 months or maybe even seemed like a couple of years or so, uh, he got COVID and he he was down and out. And they asked me if I could, again, they said, well, we see you do some of this stuff on your own. And I was doing a podcast, sort of YouTube thing uh, called Alone Together in Christ, trying to take the, my, my free time with COVID and have conversations with people, kind of like what you're doing, just talking with people. Except for I was talking to uh, church workers. I was talking to pastors, like, what's going on in Wisconsin? How are you guys dealing with COVID? What's going on in, you know, your part of the world? So uh, I had actually interviewed one of the one of the show hosts uh, from KFUO, and she was on the show, and her producers saw the show, and um, so when Cross Defense's host went down, they, they said, want to fill in for six months? Sure, that'd be great. And uh, I ended up hanging up my uh, my headphones when I left the seminary and came back to to St. Mark's in Ferndale. And uh, about what time was it? last July, they uh, we started the conversation up again, and I went back on air, and and now we've been going ever since, and it's been great. Well, you were uh, kind of an enigma in that sense, where you are comfortable doing a YouTube show, and you have that media sort of background. I mean, yeah, the church or churches have started putting out their sermons online, but you don't really have a pastor or anybody stepping into the spotlight in that medium where they are the focus. Yeah, there's there's not too much of that going on, um, and especially not in more of the traditional churches. Uh, some of the some of the more non-denominational kind of stuff, you, you find celebrity pastors, right? I mean, there's, unfortunately... What is that, Joel Olstein? Joel, yeah, those kind of guys, yeah. And that's, 
it's a it's a sheep of a different stripe from you know my circles. We don't really do that kind of thing, and uh, and a lot of it is the theological issues that end up leading down those those uh, avenues. So yeah, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, Lutherans, confessional, old fashioned, orthodox, uh, stuffy, kind of boring Lutherans. Um, we we tend to to uh, just sort of recede into the into the woodwork. Like, we, no, it's not about us. It's not about us. It's about Christ. You know, we're we're here to serve, and so we end up being quietists. Really, we we end up just kind of not saying much online, and and it's been a, it's a struggle in the Missouri Synod, I think, to try to find that balance because we have this we have this aversion to the theology of glory. We don't want any light on us, rightly so, um, and we and we hold to a theology of the cross. We want all the light on Christ, but then there's this. There's this moment of, of friction. Well, how do you how do you proclaim Christ in an internet world without some of the light being on the voice who's saying it? Which is exactly what happens at, you know in the parish in the in the every Sunday morning. The guy for for centuries, right? The guy has to step up into the pulpit and speak. So there is an audience seeing Ty Bramwell in the pulpit. Uh, we deal with that in many ways. One of them being, you know, I wear the collar, I wear the uniform, and on Sunday I put uh, an alb and stole on, or I put a chasuble on. I, I cover myself up. I become part of the furniture as much as possible, so that it's not about the man; it's about the office, and that office is under shepherd of Christ. But that doesn't relate well to the internet. It, that doesn't translate so clearly, and and that was really some of the my conscience and and what was convicting me was. How much of this is Tyrell Bramwell trying to get one more like, one more follow, one more? It, there was that. There was that poll. The theology of the glory was seeping into my into my soul, um, which is why I cut it out. But uh, now it's it's very clear. The Lord has enabled me in in what in the controversies that are going on around St. Mark and in Ferndale, and have been since June of 2021. What He's done for me is is keep it clear. This has nothing to do with me. In fact, where before I could find some glory for myself in it, now every time I speak, I ruin my own personal reputation, <laughs> which is it's just fascinating. You know, uh, it's it really is a a John the Baptist kind of situation that I find myself in now, where I'm I'm constantly decreasing that Christ can increase because literally every time I speak, all of Humboldt County gets upset. Everyone attacks what Pastor Bramwell in Ferndale says, um, which which is the way it's supposed to be. It really is the way it's supposed to be. That you know, the, the pastor, even the Christian, the layperson, we've we've always experienced a, a bit of persecution, uh, a bit of uh, stepping against the curb, uh, curve and against the grain, I should say, a little bit of that. So the fact that it's happening now is it helps keep my my wits about me with what I'm doing online, which is maybe a little more deep than we were expecting to go right now, but uh, it's just in, in general on that topic. Well, the, the controversy surrounding you is very apparent, right? Yeah. It is yeah, something that is out there and you were wading through it mm -hmm. and you view that controversy as a sign that you are headed in the right direction. Uh, yeah. For a, on a personal level. Yeah. That I, I can definitely know I can sleep well at night with a clean conscience, knowing I'm not, on YouTube pursuing my own glory. That that when I'm doing this, it's part of my job. I whereas before, when I had left and I was, you know, I was kind of that that wasn't a clear-cut thing for me. That was the struggle in my own conscience. Well, why am I doing this? What's the motivation? 
who am I serving? And and now with this this time of coming back to to Ferndale, coming back to St. Mark, and then with the way things have worked out, it is always very clear. I'm still maintaining that I don't want to be doing this kind of attitude, which is really healthy for me. I can I can then be uh, the man the Lord has called me to be to speak His words, not mine, and and I can say, you know, I'm I'm only putting this video out because of what's going on around me, and. Lord, if, I, if you could make it to where this doesn't happen, <laughs> I'd like to go back to my garden right now. Like, can I get back into doing my own world thing? Um, but that's just, that's not the, the reality. So it's helpful. Did the controversy start in the physical world with the church sign or did it start from yep. the YouTube videos? Nope, it's the physical, and which is good because, you know, when I got back and I, I talked with the leadership at the church, I let them know, even before I went back, I went on to cross defense for the second time. There's been a whole shift. The entire the entire thing is different this time around. It's great. Um, yeah, I, I left the seminary as a recruiter. I left Cross Defense as a radio host. I came back to this small town of about eight people in the congregation at the time. Um, it, you know, on a, on a weekly basis, more than that on the books, but about eight people in the in the on a Sunday, and uh, told them, you know, everything I do is going to be about us. It's going to be about right here in Ferndale. This is our world. This is where the Lord has called us. And we're coming out of a Zoom culture, right? We're coming out of COVID. Just, you know, every, everybody is ready to be in person. Everybody's ready to be back in life with each other. And I said, you know, the, the pastor you knew before was very much about, you know, let's uh, let's boost our Facebook. Let's, let's try to use Instagram. Let's you know, ca- capture the tourist who's traveling through and, you know, you know get that advertising out there. As, and I had to tell him, different guy. You got a different guy this time. I'm tired of that. Let's be in person. Let's let's do it the way Jesus did it. Let's be incarnate in the flesh with our neighbors. And so what I started doing even before uh, you know the controversy stuff popped up, I, I immediately started uh, just reaching out to people and being in town and being engaged more often than I was and not getting pulled into you know scrolling through Facebook. That's such a such a uh, it's a bit uh, of a cesspool. Yeah it's a you cesspool. Can, the yeah. comments can get a little Interesting on any post. Yeah, and it's addicting, right? You want to keep scrolling. You want to keep looking. You want to go back and back and back. And and we find that you know it's addictive. You just like oh, I gotta pull out my phone. I'm bored right now. So I'm gonna look. Um, so it was very much sort of as a, a recovery habit. Instead of instead of looking on Facebook and seeing what other pastors were doing in Texas or wherever they may live, I'm gonna go walk down Main Street. So it was sort of it was very cathartic for me. And then I started putting out uh, the Ferndale Fortitude, a little pamphlet, kind of getting, I still had the itch to, to post, do our 140 characters or whatever it's up to now. But instead of doing that, I spent the time to get a little longer, not quite a sermon length, um, and to put out this Ferndale Fortitude. And what I was doing was I was making a connection between whatever, something historical, something pertinent to Ferndale's life. And then I would tie in some, if you, know, if you happen to want to know more about this from from this theological perspective or from this cultural perspective or, or just Pastor Bramwell's opinion on it, you can reach me at, you know, and the church. Uh, and then people were reading that and they were liking it and, and we started getting people at the church who were saying, well, I really wish we could act, find this stuff online. So, I mean, we've already had our website going, but it wasn't very active and I, I hadn't even wanted to do much of that. I was so you know, repulsed by the internet that I... Uh, begrudgingly started posting the Ferndale Fortitude on, as a blog as well, like you know, just using the blog format on the, on the website. So then they could, you could read it in person if you found it on, on the street somewhere in Ferndale, but you could also read it at stmarksferndale.com. Well, then people were thinking, well, why don't you record this and do this as a video? 
you guys are killing me. You're killing me here. So the next, the next stage was now I'm, you know, uh, recording it like this and just reading it basically to the people and anybody who wants to then share it. And that's, it's, it's been great because we have members of the church who are using it as an evangelism tool. Like this is what our pastor was saying to, to people who will never, I'll never know. They're just sending it out, you know, to the world. And, uh, someone's cousin or someone's sister, someone's struggling with this thing, or someone used to live in Ferndale and they know this cultural reference that I'm bringing up in this month's issue. And, oh, this is cute. This is fun. So it's become a little bit of a tool. So that was, that was really the segue back online. And now it's within good borders. It's, it's not an addiction. It's not a problem. Uh, it's not an unhealthy situation for me personally, knowing myself. And, and I, I just recently put out a, uh, maybe a month and a half ago, thing on Facebook idleness and how, and specifically speaking to pastors and brother pastors and the clergy, um, you know, we can get sucked into just looking at what everybody else is doing and worrying about all the voices out there. And it's true in, um, among the pastors as it's true with any industry, you know, or just your peers, just your family. We start worrying about what everybody thinks and we stop focusing on the task we've been given to do where we're at. And that's a, you know, that's a, big part of, of uh, the church's perspective on life is, that for especially for pastors, but even for every Christian, you are placed into a vocation. You are put into, you know, God has, has given you your family members, your circle of friends, your town, your county, state, country, this, you're a citizen of this place. You do this as a job, you know, the vocation of podcaster, whatever it may be, do that well. This has always been the historic perspective, you know, do your job well and enjoy it. Well, the internet, Facebook, social media wants us to kind of be busybodies. We want to focus on what other people are doing. And then we end up comparing ourselves to them and, and we miss out on the joy of, of being part of the garden where we're at. You know, I'm, this is Humboldt County and Ferndale specifically is the corner of God's garden that I have the pleasure of serving in. So why do I care what the guy in New Hampshire's doing? <laughs> That's like the side of the world. Right, at least the continent. So what's it, it's really that's all part and built into this idea of uh, the mental health problems that social media creates and all these sorts of things. It's part of that conversation, but it, it really does also help focus on the local community and our and our life in it when we're not distracted by access to everyone all the time. That's an well, un- the mindless scroll is something everybody falls into, and it's a challenge you have to work through and. Yeah. Hopefully you make it to the other side and you can get out of that feedback loop. Yeah. What do you think? I think um, we're going to find that social media very quickly. I think we're going to find that social media is much like um, our generation or our times version of cigarettes. I was just thinking that. Yeah. Tell me more. Well, I think it's just, it's an escape and it's a very good escape because you get to see the highlights of everybody else's life. Yeah. And so... Maybe you're feeling bad about yourself. Maybe you had a rough day. You hop online. You're seeing these funny videos. You get that dopamine hit, and then two hours have passed, and you're still sitting on the couch, and you're still scrolling. Yeah. And that's all you've accomplished. Yep. And then you feel drained. You go to sleep. You wake up the next day, and you repeat the cycle. Yep. I think we're going to end up seeing eventually even, you know, sort of a same way we you see no smoking ads and, you know, quit smoking ads and stuff. We're going to start seeing campaigns Funded by, you know, get our kids off Facebook or whatever it might be, ads. You know, this is your brain. This is your brain on drugs kind of stuff. This is your brain. This is your brain on Twitter. I uh, think the kids will be the first to go. 
I think it'll be an 18 and up thing or maybe 16 and up with yeah. limitations of time. Yeah. I think that'll be the first step. Yeah, I think you're right. It's 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 crazy. It's a dark place. It's a really dark place. And I uh, I mean, I, I realize the benefit of it. You know, there's blessings. It's like the real world. The real world's a dark place. Well, it's an especially dark place when you are involved in controversy because yeah. you are getting feedback from everyone. Yeah. From everyone, not just yeah. the people in your town, not just the people around you, from anyone. Yep. Yep. So walk me through walk me through the start of what happened. We're back. You you reestablish your online personality for the church. You get involved in this controversy with the LGBT community. How does that start? Well, a couple a little clarification. Um flip it. The online personality or the online, you know, a presence comes after the controversy, not before. So you, the church wasn't back online. Well, we were online, but it was just maintenance. It was, ju- I mean, you could go to our website and you could look up, and it was it was meant to be low, you know, low care, low low maintenance. You can see what time the show the uh, the service starts. You can see what time Bible study starts. You can find out you know what we believe, you know, our beliefs and all that, but. Just no activity. Bones. Yeah, just it basically a, a yellow book page. <laughs> it was it was the old way internet kind of thing, website thing. Then the controversy starts getting kicked off. Uh, it's June 2021. And again, back to your question about the uh, doing the real life in-person kind of stuff. Part of that, I was doing the Ferndale Fortitude, but we also have this church sign. And we've had this church sign for forever. And we're on Birding Street. We got a lot of traffic. We got the... the uh, Lumberyard is down the road. We got the uh, there's a preschool down the road. Fireman's Park's down the road. So a lot of people take Birding Street. We're right there on the corner. And for years, even before, when the first time I was serving the church, um, one of the elders would always come in and talk to me about, we got to find a better way to use our sign. It's just, it's there. That's Everyone looks at the sign. Everyone tells me about the sign. But yet, no one's coming into the church. And and this is a classic problem. We're, we're across the board, across all denominations, in the Protestant world anyway, I can't speak for the Catholic or the Orthodox world, but in the Protestant world in the West, we're seeing a major decline. We have been really since, well, we had a post, post-war spike after World War II, boomer generation, that kind of a thing, and then almost immediately since the boomers took, you know, took control or grew up, we've been on the decline for various reasons. And now it's those people who are on the far age of the spectrum, and they're looking at the church, and especially in rural towns like Ferndale, what, 1,400 people, and there's six churches, and they're all vying for trying to get the message out, and not that we're doing it for numbers, people can't help but notice that the numbers are not there, and they're going away. So this this wonderful man would come in, and he's like, Pastor, we got to work on this sign. we got to get better messages. Like, well, what do you have in mind? Oh, I don't know. You, you come up with something. Like, well, I don't know. Uh, in fact, one time the, the board of elders brought me. I, I asked them help me out with some sign messages. This was back in like eighteen, two thousand nineteen, something like that. They brought in a printout from the internet of cliche, cheesy. I mean, they're good-hearted, well-meaning, but they were just like all kinds of things you could put on a sign. It's, it's a thing, right? Churches are known for their punny, sort of ah, that's that's cheesy, funny kind of jokes as you go by. Um. But we, but this man wanted to use it actually for you know, reaching people with you know, with Christ. Let's get them hearing the gospel. So I said, okay, let's think about this, pray about this, figure it out something. And uh, at that point, I took over the sign and we started this. This you know, it's been said several times that 
that it just came out of nowhere. I, I, you know, I read, I read the articles and all the different stuff going on from the other side and our side and people's interpretations and the letter to the editor and all this stuff. It keeps being brought up that the sign in June of 2021, which read hurt by LGBTQ culture healing here came out of nowhere, but it didn't. It was obviously planned to come out during June pride month. The church has, you know, it's no secret that the church historic church, the Orthodox church, the old fashioned confessional church, uh, still sees LGBTQ behavior as sinful. So that was, the timing wasn't, you know, incidental, but also it wasn't the first sign on the marquee. It was in a series of signs. So we had, and, and graduation was right there in between. So the week before was Ferndale High School's graduation. So it somewhat interrupted the flow of the series, but the series was hurt by blank culture. And I would change the blank, LGBTQ, divorce, drug, hookup, these sorts of things. So hurt by divorce culture, healing here. The concept was to say, we're all hurting, and there's healing. There's one place for healing, ultimately, Christ, the church. Well, nobody had a problem with hurt by divorce culture, or at least not one they would voice. Nobody said anything about hurt by drug culture, which I thought actually might stir up a little bit of something. I mean, if anything, I thought, well, this is Humboldt County. That might rub someone the wrong way. I don't know. And and what I thought rubbing the wrong way would be would, you know, a little bit of grumbling around town. Maybe, maybe the Ferndale Enterprise might put a, you know, an editorial against it or something. But it was the LGBTQ one. And that one, it did catch me by surprise. I, you know, we talked to the church as a church afterwards. I was like, I am, I gotta apologize. We stumbled into this. I wasn't well prepared for this. I was naive to how you know entrenched the culture was on this issue i i thought we were i thought this was ferndale i thought this was sort of more of a conservative town everyone told me it was and the, the county seems to call it you know ferntucky they kind of they treat us like we're this backwoods conservative place i i didn't know we were going to have a protest with nearing 100 people in front of our church sorry guys <laughs> so, um but so that's, it was June of 2021. It didn't come out of nowhere. It came out of a series I was running on purpose, trying to show that Christ was the answer to all hurts. And um, then we had the protest. And, and that's really what got me back online, just kind of tracking things. Um, and I'm still resistant. But then there was also the question in-house of owning it, being responsible and not just throwing a grenade and walking away. In fact, this was something I wrestled with in the week. Was it a week or two, maybe? I don't know how long it took them to have the protest. It must have been a week, because the sign always runs from Monday to Monday. It's always a week long. Um, and yeah, so it must have been within that week that they had organized. I think the, I think it was actually, they were, gonna, they were already going to have some sort of protest or some sort of gathering in Arcata, and they just relocated it, is, is my understanding, and that could be off. I don't know the details. But so they showed up, and and it was a Saturday. Church was the next day, and Saturday's my day off. Yeah, pastors get them, and I was thinking, I don't technically have to be there. There's going to be a protest. I, who knows if there maybe two people will show up. I don't know what the protest was going to be like. Saw it on Instagram. And I remember asking my wife, what do you think I should do? We're sitting over there. The, the house that we live in is the parsonage. It's right across the street from the church. So we're sitting in the living room. We're looking out the window at the church, see the sign there, just looking at it. I'm like, okay, so apparently tomorrow there's going to be a protest. 
we could go on like a little getaway, just get out of town, like go enjoy some time together. Oh, that doesn't seem right. Uh, yeah, let's just own it. So I went down to the grocery store. I bought a bunch of cases of Crystal Geyser. Got ready the next day. Had some you know information to hand out on on the biblical view of of homosexuality, the biblical view on tra uh, transgender, these sorts of things that we have information on. Um, and then my Bible. I was like, okay, I'll just stand out there. If anyone wants to talk, that's the whole point of the sign was to invite them here to give them Jesus. So thanks, Lord. You're bringing people here. So I did that. I, I was out there ready, and they came, and we had a wonderful conversation with one guy before everybody else really started showing up. I think he was a homosexual man. He seemed to be like coming from that perspective. And uh, he seemed to be really agitated at, at first uh, that I, would, I was trying to hurt him. And I explained to him, no, I'm not trying to hurt you at all. In fact, I'm trying to bring you healing. Um, and, I, and I was sincere about that. I don't mean this in any sort of derogatory or off-the-cuff way. I mean this sincerely. If you've been hurt by this culture, I'd like to bring you the healing of Christ. I'd like to show you what that looks like. So we, he actually started to—my read of the situation, we just started to turn like, maybe I'm curious. And he asked me, can you show me in Scripture what we're talking about? As soon as I opened the Bible, and, and at this time, you know, people are starting to show up, and this lady just jumps down my throat, does not want me to talk to this man. And that was the rest of the day. I mean, everybody, you know, there was, there was people holding their rainbow flags. Every time I started to talk, they wanted to raise their voice and then all this kind of stuff. And it got a little out of hand. I got to tell you, I wrestled with just communication skills, and I, I know, you know, if I, if you and I are going to argue, and if I want to sort of be done arguing. I'm not going to raise my voice. I'm going to lower my voice. I'm going to de-escalate the situation. And so the kazoos are out and the yelling's out and the, you know, the kumbayas and the singing of Taylor Swift songs and all this stuff is getting loud and we're right there in my town and we're in my neighborhood. And I'm like, I know the right thing to do is just shut up. Just stop talking or, or go quiet. And then it was, a, it was a theological issue. Again, it was my conscience as a pastor. I said, Wait a minute. This is my job. I've been called to be a pastor. That means to speak God's word to sinners, and that would be everybody, just to be clear, if anyone's watching this, we're all sinners. We all need that same healing of Christ. And so I, I made a sort of spur-of-the-moment decision, no, don't get quiet this time. And that's, that might be the right strategy in, in a general sort of conversation or argument, but the Lord brought you almost 100 souls for a reason. When you face the big guy, you don't want him to say, well, hey, Ty, I brought you 100 people to hear the gospel, and you were like, I'm going to be quiet because that's what you know, communication skill says. Like, no. So I kept getting louder, just preaching. And I got to tell you, it's the first time I ever preached just off the cuff. Uh, I preached off the cuff before, but to a hostile audience, straight out of Scripture, just open the Bible, no prep, just like, here it is, um, which was intense and intimidating. And they got louder, and I got louder, and they got louder. But I figured, you know, I want them to have to face the guy when the Lord says, why didn't you listen to the pastor? That's on them, not on me. And, and, and you know, this is from my worldview. I don't even know. I don't even know who I'm talking to. So who knows? But this is, you know, this is from me. And um, so it was crazy. And then after that, again, again, all the conversations at the church have always been about owning it, being responsible. So the next month, you know, the next year rolls around. There's things in between, but the next year rolls around and people are asking, well, what are we going to do? Are we just dropping this. And, and there's, you know, internally, none of us like the tension. Everyone at the church is like, I just want this to go away. I didn't come out of the seminary thinking, I want to be a missionary to the LGBTQ. I know very little about it at first. 
I've served people who are struggling with that, those temptations, going through those things. I have some family members, cousins and uncle, things like that. I think we all kind of have that nowadays. Um, but it was nothing on my radar like, this is my goal. This is where I'm going to spend my efforts. My goal actually was, <laughs> my most recent goal was to leave this, this seminary and go to a small, quiet town and live a peaceful life serving eight people for sure <laughs> and whoever else may come. Um, and uh, the Lord said, you got your plan, I got mine, buckle up. With that said, it is something I prayed for. When I came back from the seminary, when I came back, I uh, the pastors are pretty contemplative people. We do a lot of do a lot of prayerful thought, and uh, I re was reflecting on my first three years at Ferndale. I had a seven month window, a break, coming back. I wanted, okay, what did I do wrong? What did I do better? What could I, you know, what could I change? That kind of thing. And the first time I was here, we did we had a lot of deaths. Congregation, everybody when I got here, everybody in the congregation, save one person, was retired. And and that everybody is about 20 people, you know, when I first got here. Um, number of deaths, and uh, a couple people joined the church. One was still there when I left, and she's become a mainstay, and she's, I mean, a younger person that's just, like, full of energy, and she's a mainstay there now. And... You know, that first go-around, again, this is part of the sort of a look into my soul and my conscience, what's going on. The first time around, I joined the chamber. I was, you know, pretty good friends with the people that are kind of now on the opposite side of things with from me. And um, so I, I joined the chamber. I wrote two kids' books about Ferndale, you know, uh, The World of the Wazzlewoods and they, it's about Fern and Dale living in Cream City, California, and that kind of stuff. I was trying to, was trying to be... The, the prevailing wisdom is, you know, meet people where they're at and, you know, get to know them and, and do everything but go native. Like, just be with the people and love them to Jesus. I bought into all that, and I was like, okay, sure. And there was no real proof in the pudding, which is kind of why I left. You know, when, you're, when, you're, when you receive a, a call from the Lord, another call to go somewhere else, what the pastor does is pray about that. Well, is my time here done? Am I, am I being effective? Am I, am I in the middle of something? You know, if I got a call tomorrow here, I'm in the middle of something. I'm not going anywhere. Uh, maybe, you know, could the next guy do more work? Uh, am, am I stale? Am I, am I done? Have I, have I kind of, am I out of gas? And I was kind of feeling that after three years. And it was only three years. And really, if after three years, you're really just getting started in, in, a, in a call. But with COVID and all that, so I left. I come back. And I'm saying, what am I going to do different? What should I do? Lord, help me. First thing I did, and this is this has been the key key component. Pastors are supposed to pray for their people. The people think we just you know our main thing is to preach, and our main thing is to you know do Bible study or to to you know do services on Sundays, and that is a big part of our job. But the number one thing pastors are supposed to do, and I from being in this industry, the main thing we fail to do is pray for our people daily. And I was guilty of that. I, I would pray in generalities. I'd pray every once in a while. I'd pray on Sundays for the people. And I said, I was in Fort Wayne at the time, packing up, getting ready to come back, being reflective. And I said, I'm going to pray for the people every single day by name. That's the, that's the number one thing I can do different. 
So as soon as we got back, and I, well, I started then, but as soon as we got back, I, I came into the sanctuary, and I started the habit of, of every day coming into the church sanctuary by myself. And I, you know, when you have eight people to pray for, it goes pretty quick. <laughs> uh, but then I started praying for everyone that I would come in contact with throughout the day as a pastor. And then I would start, I added my family to it, not just my immediate family, but all my family. I started adding, you know, the mayor of town. Um, now on the list, it, I mean, it's pages and pages and pages of people that I pray for every day. Those who hate me, those who hate the church, those who, I mean, if I know their names, if I don't know their names, they're lumped into a group, right? Like, you know, Lord, please, all these LGBTQ activists that, that don't understand me, you know, give them insight into my mind and help me to, to reach them, that kind of thing. Um, and, and in that prayer is, Lord, glorify your name. Let, let people know who you are in Humboldt County. I didn't do a good job showing them last time, so it's not about me showing them. Cut me off at the knees. Humble me. I don't need to write books, and I don't need to rub elbows with the you know business owners and all that kind of nah. Just do your thing. And if it means I must decrease and you must increase, let it be. And that's John the Baptist, right? So, And John the Baptist gets beheaded, so I was praying a pretty severe prayer. And that's exactly what he's done. It's been awesome. It has been amazing because the Lord said, okay, Ty, you ready? Here we go. And we are actively engaged in so much right now. And yes, it's controversial, but the, the main thing that, and this is what the, the news people, I mean, nobody's ever asked me, nobody's done an interview asking me about our, our side of thing. I mean, I, I've, I've been on some, I had some couple of interviews and, um, but they're always loaded questions. It seems, you know, uh, are you are you are you worried that someone might take your words and connect them to the the Proud Boys in Idaho? And I'm like, what does that have to do with me? Like, you know, it's, there's always some sort of goal, agenda. agenda or something. I don't. Know, I, I want to be gracious and not say there's agenda, but it it's never really like, hey, Pastor, how are things at the church? <laughs> you know, it's always on, from the other perspective. It seems maybe that's not the case, but. Um, the Lord has let this controversy be a light, a beacon, really like a lighthouse for a lot of people who have who were feeling alienated and isolated out here. Like a lot of people were feeling like the church abandoned them. In Humboldt County, you know, we're we're not really a a bastion of orthodoxy. We're we're not really a, a church culture. We're out here geographically isolated. I mean, every denomination that's low, that's present here just by virtue of our geography, is isolated from a lot of their peers, right? So we are an isolated group of people on every Christian front. Um, and when that happens, you can get, uh, your doctrine can get loose over time, which is what had happened at St. Mark. Our doctrine had become loose, um, and, and we, we were really just trying to operate like the world to reach people. Well, number one thing I got to tell people is, if you're operating like the world as a church, like a business to try to reach people, there's a lot cooler businesses out there than the church. People don't want to come to a stuffy Sunday morning service when they could go to the old steeple for, you know, a, a concert. I'm one of them. If if coming to church is about, you know, entertainment or or this sort of thing, what is it offering me in that regard in a worldly sense? I'm going somewhere else because the church is boring. But if what we're doing is reaching souls, 
then we look at the Bible and we see that God has shown us exactly what he have us do, and it's really simple. Just be faithful. Say what he says. And that simplicity, though, is a willingness to lose your head like John the Baptist and speak a word that's unpopular. And so when I spoke the word of hurt by LGBTQ culture healing here, I thought it would be unpopular with a few people who perhaps were LGBTQ. I had no idea it would be, it would be read as hateful. To me, there's nothing hateful about offering healing. And I was still, and I still am, operating from an objective worldview, that there's objective truth out there, not, not everything being relative and subjective, which I think is at the core of the problem. But there's a lot of people in our county who feel like the church abandoned them because the church is going with the tide of the culture. And so you have churches that are bringing in the rainbow stuff, and you have churches that are bringing in the climate crisis stuff, you have churches that are bringing in CRT and all the woke, all the woke stuff. They've, they've hitched their wagon to that. But there's still a bunch of people out there going, that's not faithful. That's not what I was taught. And so they end up not going to church. So what we found in this controversy is that we're well beyond eight people. We're not necessarily reaching yet LGBTQ people, although that is now our goal, is to actually reach them. We, we see the mission that the Lord has put before us. But in the meantime... We're reaching people who haven't been in church in years because the church wasn't being faithful, and they weren't going to waste their time. Well, if the, wor- if the job of a pastor is to get more people engaged and bring more people to the Word of God, wouldn't engaging in controversy and furthering or participating in division be the opposite of that? Wouldn't you be driving people away from the Scripture? Yeah, I would think I would say if you're doing that on purpose, bad plan. Like if you're seeking controversy, that that's not, you know, the the intention of the heart is wrong and it's not going to be good. But the scriptures reveal and and if you look through church history, you can even go outside of scripture. The way the the, the church spread globally was through the friction, was through the controversy. When the the first martyrs were brought into the arena and they were fed to lions and burned at the stake and these sorts of things, that's controversy, right? They were there because they weren't rendering unto Caesar what Caesar wanted. They weren't giving him worship or whatever. They were putting, you know, they weren't offering uh, sacrifices to idols and all that kind of stuff. And it was cultural too. Like they weren't weren't having dinner with, with family and friends because the meat had been blessed to the idols. So there was a there was conscience issues at the, at play, um, and so that you have families divided, and these people are willing to say, "I love you, dear, but I love God more," and so I'm willing to die for that. And then they actually did it. They were really burned at the stake, and the entire time they didn't recant. They held true to their word, and it wasn't because they wanted controversy; it's because they wanted faithfulness. And then that becomes an attractant, which is exactly what happened historically. People looked at Polycarp, and they looked at these guys getting martyred, and they said, I need that. Look at the peace of that guy. He's being killed right now, and he's at peace. He believes something. Is there any, is there any validity to that truth? And that's what's happening right now. That's, that's where, why it is uh, sort, of, sort of paradoxical. You would think it would drive people away. And perhaps it drives some away in the, in the particular place they're at right now in their life, but it's also an attractant to those who are seeking truth 
And Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Um, he also says the truth will set you free. Pilate, Pontius Pilate, coming up on Easter, Pontius Pilate says, what is truth? He asked that postmodern question. What is truth? And that's exactly, the, that's why I say that the core of this problem and all the controversy that we're dealing with, it, it's just a straight-up postmodern relativistic problem. We in the church, in the historic Christian church, are still operating from a, a position of objective truth exists. What is it? We want to find it. And the world is, you make your own truth. You want to be a boy and you're a girl. Make your own truth. Manifest however you want. Uh, it's, it's, that, that's an extreme. of This has been coming for decades, but that's the extreme. That who am I to say what Nick's feeling right now? You know, it's, it's your world, man. Who am I to say? And that, there's a place for subjectivity. There's a place for personal emotion. But there's also a place for facts, truth. And people realize that, and they're hungry for that. And another part that is factored into this is strength. What people are seeing that are coming to St. Mark, they are seeing that we didn't bend to the cancel culture. I mean, I had so many people yelling at us to take down the sign. All week long, that very first sign, you are, you are vi doing violence against me, they would say. I had, a, I had a young girl, I assume she goes to Cal Poly Humboldt, she's about that same age, and she had talked about something about her professor said, and she was bawling. My heart broke for her. She's standing outside the sign. After the protest, there's about five of them that stuck around, and she's pointing at the sign, and she's just literal tears, bawling, gushing tears. She's hyperventilating. She ends up leaving because she can't speak and she, she can't breathe. And she's saying, just take it down. Don't you see that you're hurting me? And I kept saying, but don't you see that I'm trying to heal you? There, I mean, look, read the words. Hurt by LGBTQ culture, healing here. And I asked her, have you been hurt by the LGBTQ culture? She said, no. I said, well, then move on. This isn't about you. This has nothing to do with you. But someone who over here who has been hurt by it, I want them to know this is a lifeboat. They can come here. Um, but... But that, but that was the pressure. And I, I don't think it's malicious. I don't think it's uh, conspiratorial or anything like that. I don't think they're, um, you know, people are trying to get us to, can, to cancel us like we're something to be canceled. But that is the culture and that is the climate we're in today where people say, I don't like what they're doing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cry and complain and whine and, and shout them down. And, and I'm of the persuasion that we feed that beast when we give into it, which I, you know, I think might stir some of this on, spur some of this on. I don't think people are used to pastors saying, no, this is... Oftentimes in our culture right now, people see pastors as they want to reach everyone. They, they want to fill the pews or, or their, their number one goal is to, to be loving with Jesus and the gospel. And these things are true, but the way they're understood is wrong. Meaning, I'll do anything to get Nick into the into the church. No, I won't. No, I, I won't do anything. I'll tell you the truth. I'll let you decide if you want to be in the church. If you don't, hey man, free world. Still be friends, right? It's not, I'm not uh out to to sell my soul to get you, to get anyone into the church, which means I'm not going to cave to falsehood. And I'm gonna do it out of love for you. One thing I explained to the church because we had to we had to do some teaching on the in on the inside of this in in house conversations. 
Well, pastor, why don't you just take the sign now? What would be the harm of taking the sign now? He said, it would, it would amplify a culture that if it's upset at you, thinks it can shut you down. By leaving it up, we are actually, I truly believe this, serving those people who hate us. We're helping them learn how to face hardship. They can see a sign that upsets them, and the world will not end. It'll be okay. Just yeah, but that's that's a very positive way of looking at it, right? Because yeah, for that girl that was crying, it was no, it was it was her. emotional. It was bad. It, yeah, it's it's the whole snowflake thing, you know, the safe space thing. Um, and and this comes. I mean, there's all kinds of data on this now. I think, but uh, I was reading a book. The book. Uh, now I wish I wouldn't have brought it up. There's a there's a book out there by two uh, sociologists, I believe, and uh, they're 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 looking at they're looking at the the safe space phenomenon that hit colleges around 2013. What's the name of this book? I think it's called a. Uh, this isn't the coddling of the American mind. That is it. That's the one. That thank you very much. And um, have you read that? No, I own it. It's in oh, my room. Yeah. I just haven't oh, gotten man, around to reading it. Thank yeah. you. For, thank you very much. That's exactly what I'm looking at. Oh, that's the exact the book I'm talking about. And they're diagnosing how do we get to a place on college campuses where college students need to have safe spaces. That's really kind of the premise behind the book. And they they rewind and they go back and they find, well, the, the same students that hit college around 2013-14 with the first uprising of this, this new phenomenon, where were they when they were seven or eight? Well, they were the kids being hover-parented. They had no hardship in their life. Everything was you know, bubble wrap and and participation trophies and the whole nine yards, like all these things. And that's what I mean is from the positive perspective, I'm serving my neighbor in that respect, which is a big part of being Christian. I'm helping that girl learn, your day is going to be fine tomorrow. It's okay, right? Now, yeah, that is our perspective on her situation. The, the other part of that that goes in, well, why don't take why don't we take down the sign, Pastor, is we're also serving our neighbors that are not part of this, That and even unborn neighbors yet, a pr- future neighbors we don't even know exist because we're fighting for truth, goodness, beauty, all the old virtues. And, and, and that's all encapsulated in a simple sign that says, hurt by LGBTQ culture, healing here. It's, there's so much being said there now, in, this, in the, you know, looking back in the lens here, um, LGBTQ culture can hurt you, that there is a place for healing. I mean, there's some big, giant concepts being conveyed in this little sign. And what we found is in Ferndale, many people are willing to let those old values go away and not fight for them and not, you know, many people are fine letting, just like burying their head in the sand and and letting it, pretending that the LGBTQ culture is is just an alternative to any normal lifestyle and it's not harmful and things like that. Well, let's let's fast forward 50 years and then a pastor decides if there even is a church there for him to serve, oh, the Bible does say homosexuality is wrong. It's it's been part of the American landscape officially since Oberfell, so 50 years from now, right? 60, 75 years or so. And then he speaks up. How much harder is it going to be for him to try to speak truth to a culture that is completely gone? Whereas right now we're on the precipice. I'm standing on the edge. If if my predecessors would have been able to speak bolder 25, 30 years ago from where I'm standing, they would have been 
fighting the fight of uh, you know against divorce, against same-sex marriage before it was you know passed by the Supreme Court and things like that. If they would have been bold then in Ferndale, they would have been able to help prevent the controversy today. So there's there's a there's a continuum, you know, a timeline here. And Christians serve not just our, our current neighbors, but we're also thinking of future neighbors. We're thinking of the whole thing. And and that's a you know a important part about this is we're also thinking about the girl crying at the sign. And and maybe from a way that she's not thinking of, that I, I do have the option to take the sign down. Yeah, that is a viable option. I can do that. But is that going to serve you or hurt you? Which one of these two things would I be doing more of if I did this? And this brings it to a to a commandment issue, as as we we teach it in the church. We don't do things to hard, uh, harm our neighbor. We're always doing things to serve our neighbor. And Good Samaritan's a great parable about that. Um, and we can see it in in real easily in physical things. You know, fifth commandment: shall not murder. And people think, well, okay, this means you don't kill people. No, it means so much more than that. It means that if I was to see you hurting, not only would I not walk past you and ignore your pain, I would actually try to help you. If I see that you fell off your bike and you scraped your knee and you're bleeding, I'm not just going to go, oh, it sucks to be that guy. I'm going to stop and say, hey, you need a Band-Aid? You know, this, this kind of thing. It's true for the, the physical. It's true for the spiritual as well. So we're in a culture where anytime some some celebrity says something on Twitter that it is remotely old-fashioned, <laughs> not controversial, just old-fashioned, and the view attacks him, and all of a sudden there's a there's a riot online, and three days go by, and he comes out and he says, I'm so sorry, I shouldn't have said those things. Yeah, the fake apology is a problem today. Yeah. It, when and people just that, apologize. And it to, fuels it, right? It yeah, fuels it. To stop something. So, yep, and which is... What we were faced with with that first sign of, are we sorry? If we, I mean, do, I meant that. Did I? Did I mean that sign? Like, was but it? you can understand their perception of it because, in the lead up where you are posting these other signs of hurt by X, find comfort here. Mm-hmm. Those things, almost culturally, have a negative connotation. Hurt by drugs, people perceive drugs to be bad, so you're finding solace here. Hurt by divorce, people perceive divorce to be bad. Come here. Then you throw in the LGBT community. People don't perceive that as bad. And you're yep. attributing in the phrasing of that. That it is. That it is. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Um, which is really showing how far you know, the, the, the culture has shifted from the church's stance. Um, you know, I, I wrestled with, in that series, I had a whole list of, of things to do. I was going to continue on with that series for a while. Um, and I had on there, actually... Uh, hurt by church culture. I was going to ask you about that. I th- and, and that's been brought up a lot. You know, everybody on the other side wants to say, well, you know, the church hurts people more than... Sure they do. And I recognize that. And I thought about... I really sincerely thought about that. But the, but the reason I didn't go with that was because the church, while it has sinners in it who can do damage and hurt people, itself is not a harmful thing. Itself is not a harmful institution or movement. But I, I would hold, and the church Catholic, uh, it's the word for universal, the church universal, throughout time and space, all throughout the history, has held that homosexuality is wrong, has held that uh, the disordering of God's creation, the way he's ordered it, is wrong. Well, i got to stop you there for a sec, because you could argue that the institution is 
corrupted. You could argue the scripture is not, but you... The church institution? The church institution. I mean, when you take the Catholic church, for instance, right. versus what it's the direction everyone goes, you had people at the highest level yeah. that were moving priests around that were molesting kids. Yeah. And if it's that institutionalized, you would have to argue it's systemic. And then, yeah, it might not be the word of God, right? but it is the institution built around that word that yeah. is... I mean, doing something so horrific. I get what you're saying. Um, I and I wrote when you know the the Philadelphia priests thing came out not too long ago, uh, 2017, 18 or so, um, and we saw a lot of that. I wrote a, a piece that was published in the Time Standard about it's, it's time that truth is uh, made known, and it was calling the the priests to task. So where I push back on that though is that the church is not a man made institution. It's filled with men. It's filled with people. But Christ himself instituted it in Matthew 28 when he said, Go, therefore, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them all that I've commanded you. So my reply to that would be that the church is not a, a man-made movement or institution. It's corrupted and corruptible by the people in it. But if you do get back to its foundational tenets, it's a good, healthy thing. And so I would say that definition of church culture, the like church proper, what it's supposed to be, ideally... Is a good thing. On the other side, on the other side of that, the LGBTQ culture, even in its most ideal form, is still going to be a bad thing. We should dive into that. So, what is your stance on? Let's take it to the basics on homosexuality. It's a sin. And do you have? You mentioned you have family members or people that you're friends with that are inclined yep. in that direction. Yep. What is your stance towards them? Still love them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that, and that's a you know that's a misnomer that people think we're just we hate people of that persuasion. Not at all. If I hated them, I wouldn't want to be healing, right? Um, no, I have good relations with with my cousin. My uh, my uncle and I don't speak too much, but it has nothing to do with that. It's just because we're differences. Two, two grown men. No, not really even differences. I mean, he's living his life somewhere in the world. I'm living my life somewhere in the world. I mean, that kind of a thing. It's just you know, uncle and nephew don't necessarily stay tight. Um, but yeah. Uh, and they know where I'm at. They know what I preach. They know what I teach. They probably disagree. Uh, we, in the past, we've had some you know, conversations, and, and some of them are heated for a while, and they boil down. The church loves people, truly, and not just using that language. That language, that's so sad that love is... It's a loaded phrase now. Yeah, it's awful. It, but it really is. The church does love, and the homosexual community, that's why we're engaged in this. Because I don't want to see any single member of the LGBTQ end up in hell. I don't want any of them because of their unrepentance and and to to not even know they need to repent. That's the point we're at in society now is that it's being culturally accepted. And so there's going to be, a gener if not already, a generation of people who don't know it's wrong. That's the That's the fear. That's the danger. So when I speak against homosexuality, it's not out of a, uh, ooh, that's gross, or a disdain, or uh, just, you know, that kind of a, a hatefulness, or even a, a disagreement. It has nothing to do with Thai or my opinion. It has to do with, God said this is, this is an abomination to his will, and he says that those who commit these sorts of sins without repentance will go to hell. And he says he doesn't want anyone to do that. He wants none to perish, but all to reach repentance. And he set up an economy where people go out and tell other people what he said and bring them along. And that's my job, and that's the Christian's job. So for us, we see it as 
and this could be fill in the blank. Again, the, the whole idea of the, the, the sign, fill in the blank. Um, if you're standing on the train tracks and the train's coming, you want some love, true love is going to be someone telling you, get off the train tracks. And at first, the train's a mile down, you hear the horn, you look down, you see it coming, you're like, hey, bud, train's coming. Yeah, but is engaging in homosexuality the same thing as standing on a train track with an incoming train? Spiritually speaking, yeah, because it's it's or another analogy is uh, like you know smoking. If if yeah, people each, could see both what of those lead to a direct physical death, physical death, and homosexuality leads to a spiritual death. The, the second death is the way Scripture would talk about it. Yeah, um, and and there's you can do bodily harm in that too. Um, there's there's a reason why in the in the homosexual culture there's more talk of. Uh, you know the AIDS medicine, HIV medicines, things like that, because that's that is more prevalent in that culture. Um, and I'm not going to go any further than that. I don't know much more about that. I also know I've heard from uh, drag queens recently. I, again, still learning the culture um, that they they praise drag shows for like handing out safe needles and and like there's there's like so there's, a, there's an enveloping of the drug issues too. And I would say it's probably just sort of shooting from the hip here but it's probably because to live with yourself when you're when you're committing these sorts of sins you know it in your heart in the heart of hearts when you look at yourself at night sleeping personally and nobody else is around there's something broken well i think that is a bit of a stretch you could attribute the brokenness to drug use i don't think you can attribute that to homosexuality i would say that the homosexuality is well, the drug use and homosexuality is part of the fallen world, and I'm not, I'm not talking about you know someone choosing that. Like the, the sin is what's hurting them, but when you're when you're constantly numbing your conscience, you need to compensate for that. You need to you need to learn to cope. It's a coping mechanism, uh, and it's like it's, it could be for any type of sin. It doesn't, I mean, it doesn't have to be the hot button one. Um, you know, pastors, we struggle with many different things, and and we have. Uh, brotherhood that is always trying to point us to healthy coping mechanisms. So when you're, when you're burned out and frustrated, don't go home and instead of drinking, you know, one dram of whiskey down the bottle, right? You might, you might like your bourbon, but you know, don't self-medicate, right? Um, because what do we do with sin? We want to null it. We want to, we want to dull it. We want to get it out of our system. We want to escape it. That's in this fallen world we live in, that's really what everybody is trying to do on all different levels. We're trying to escape the brokenness within us on that spiritual plane. And I would say that there's a, there's a good reason you're see, we see, anecdotally at least, like I said, I don't know the details of this, but when I see trans people praising distribution of needles and, and see the, the, um, the highlight of the HIV medications and things like that, I'm putting the two together. Well, th these things aren't categorically different. It's all dealing with sin. And and I would say, I would offer that the, the biblical view, the Christian view, is that there's a healthier way to deal with whatever you're feeling. Not necessarily that particular thing. Like it could be it could be this. I mean, this is a I think this would be a really gracious and maybe an eye-opener for people. There's a there's a correlation between um homosexuality or drag behavior, uh, any sort of like sexual deviancy in the broad biblical kind of terms, that, you know, something happened to you as a child, 
your uncle molested you, something like that. There's a, there's a there's statistical correlations between probabilities of, of struggling with that kind of a thing yourself when you're older. So that's in that in that um, situation, that person's a victim, and they're trying to cope with the hurt in their heart, the brokenness in their heart. What I would point them to is Christ and a church and a wholesome way of dealing with that, rather than an indulging in it. And, and indulging in even more things, too, to try to get it to go away. That's why we're, we're all trying to drown our sorrows. We're all trying to just silence it out. Instead of silencing it with more noise, more things that are harming you, silence it with the peace that comes from Christ is the, is the point. Well, that is a factor. I mean, children being molested can have adverse effects yeah. on long-term sexuality and on, I mean, a number of factors because it's so horrific it's a traumatic experience awful yeah you know that's i that's probably one of the things that's going on in this controversy is that i'm i'm looking at root causes the churches conservative thought process i think deals with roots and i wonder if i wouldn't go as far as to say this is the case but i'm i'm wondering if the left leaning thought process and, and the, the stopgaps we always see put into policy and legislation and things like that, they're dealing with symptoms. Well, again, you can't attribute, even with the correlation in that regard, that's not for every homosexual person or no, every no, trans no. person. Yeah, no, It's it, just, it is apparent, but it's not mm-hmm. a through line. But the root of all these things, and this is where it's not just about homosexuality. It could be about gossip. It could be about gambling. It could be about you know drunkenness, whatever, fill in the blank. There is a root there is a better solution here with Christ and with you know, being in God's word and hearing the forgiveness of sin. This is where the point we want to get to is the forgiveness of sins. When we recognize all these things have to do with living in a sinful, broken world, and it's not just the sin of the guy across the, across the table, it's a sin of this guy on this side of the table, and that there is a solution that's been tried and tested and true and it survived even in the midst of sinful man corrupting it, there is this economy put in place to deliver forgiveness of sins. But if we are all sinful at our core, why is it that this group is being persecuted specifically? Persecuted by? Well, persecuted mainly by the church. You hear that a lot, that the LGBTQ community is targeted by the church. But we are all sinners. And you don't hear pastors talking about the dangers of shellfish. You don't hear that, right? (laughs) But we do hear them talk about the dangers of homosexuality. Yep. And in the Bible, at least to my understanding, there's no distinction of a level of sin. It's sin across the board is bad. Yep. But again, only one of those sins is hammered in. Right now, yeah. But throughout time, I mean, that seems to have always been the biggest sin, when in reality, there's no distinction between that and eating shellfish. Well, yeah, you're right. There's the point where sexual immorality and um, so in in scripture, sexual immorality and uh, offering food to idols are are two of the repeating sins that are just always there. And it's interesting that and so I don't know why you brought up self shellfish, but that's funny that you bring up food and sexual immorality. Well, that's just the, that's the most the, insane one that you could think yeah, of, like, oh, we can't have exactly. lobster. So. It's funny, though, that you brought up food and eating and sexual immorality, because those are the two things in Scripture, from the Old Testament all the way through to Revelation, that 
end up being the big one. And the, and the eating ends up being about idolatry toward a false god. And that's the, also the reason sexual immorality becomes the big one that's always pounded in, is because it's, a, it's also a, uh, an idolatry. Uh, adultery is very parallel to idolatry. Uh, the Hosea, prophet Hosea, was actually told by the Lord, and this is going to give some fuel to, uh, to the opponents. You have some fodder here, have fun with it. Um, Hosea was commanded to marry a prostitute and to stay married to her, right? So this sexually immoral person to show the forgiveness of sin, to show that the, the bridegroom, Christ, is always willing to forgive and to pursue his unfaithful bride. So why is sexual immorality always the seeming the talking point? Because it is at the center of our lives. Sex is how life is com- comes about. And what we do with our bodies is of the utmost importance to God. Importance to God. He created us. He created us for a purpose. And the number one way we abuse that is by abusing our body sexually. It, it becomes. You think about how Christ came into the world as a baby. He's he's born into this family, and and his was you know miraculous, but the whole system, the whole economy of the family is important to God, that it maintains this, this holiness to it for the sake of the incarnation of Christ. Even, I mean, before the incarnation, but even after the incarnation. Why is, why is homosexuality such a, a beat-up? Now, i got to tell you, i got to push back a little bit, because I only talk about LGBTQ stuff so much because of the controversy. It is not my favorite thing to talk about, and it's not the only—I mean, when you come to the church and you hear me preach on a Sunday, I preach to all the sins of all the congregants. We may reference the sign because it's on everybody's mind, but you'll never walk away from a sermon from a faithful pastor where we're pointing the finger at one particular group of sinners. That I just kind of push on that because... But across churches, not you specifically, yeah. I want to make that clear. Yeah. I've, I've known of churches historically where you can't even go inside if you're a homosexual. Yeah. If and, you're gay, they won't even let you in. And that but, pastor needs to be tarred and feathered. Absolutely. Um, so let me finish this story or this thought, and then let me tell you a story on that because that's really... Uh, my heart's with you. That it's a horrible thing that that happens. The 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 nuclear family, father, mother, hopefully children, if that's possible. It is a picture of of Christ and the bride, and the children, which are called Christians. So Paul tells us that the reason marriage is between a man and a woman is because it is a picture of the bridegroom Jesus and his bride, the church, and. And he comes to the church. And, and you have a biological metaphor built in here that what happens when man and, and woman come together, they have offspring. And in the church, that's baby Christians are born. You hear the word, the seed, that in the biological metaphor, the sperm becomes the word of God preached. And, it, and the church, you know, Song of Solomon stuff, it's great. The church is the, is the beloved. It's the passive. It's the receiver where... Christ, the, the husband, is the lover. And they're all throughout the Song of Solomon. The man is the lover, and the woman is the beloved. And, and there's this picture, because this is how forgiveness works. You and I, being part of the female, part of the church, I mean, it's kind of weird for us guys, but, but in the corporate sense, we're part of the feminine uh, thing. We receive God's word of forgiveness. We receive his, his word. And when we receive that... It's like we're conceived in the womb. Baptism is our birth into the family of God, and we go to the altar, and we eat from the, the, 
bread of dad's table. And, and so you see an economy of life that is spiritual, but it's also physical. So there's real water and baptism. There's real you know, bread and wine and the body and blood of Jesus are in the altar. So there's a, there's a parallel there. So to answer your question, why is homosexuality all throughout history the one that seems to get drummed on? One, I would say fornication, just general heterosexual sin outside of, you know, sex outside of marriage is probably, probably what I would say is the one that gets pounded on most. But homosexuality, because of its extreme nature, gets maybe a little more light. But I would say probably more pastors throughout history have talked about faithful sex inside marriage between a man and a woman, as as opposed to between you know uh, homosexuals. But it's because it distorts the the picture of God as He's revealed Himself. That's why it's, it has really nothing to do with sex I mean, in that sense. But it has to do with what that points to on the spiritual plane, with Jesus and and us, the church. So that's why it's a big deal. And that's why really you look at Scripture, and especially in the Old Testament, the word abomination is attached to it. it and it's not attached to a lot of other sins. So you're absolutely right in your diagnosis or your, your, your noting that homosexuality does get more press throughout, throughout the church's history. That's why, because it is so contrary to not only to nature, but to God's plan for deliverance of more life. God is the God of life, not the God of death. And homosexuality is by its nature uh, a landscape of death. And I know that those are strong words. It sounds really bad, and I'm probably going to get roasted for it. But you see on a, on a non-homosexual um, topic, you see women in the Bible who are barren, and they're devastated. They can't have children. It breaks their heart. And, and they go to the Lord, and they, they pray, and they plea, and they, all they want is to be able to have children. That's caught up in this whole identity situation we're dealing with now, which is part of you know, the disordering of God's order that we're wrestling against as a church. But barrenness is bad because barrenness is death. That's why in the Old Testament you find the menstrual cycle and you know the being unclean when the woman has her period. That's kind of a misogynistic thing to say, right? Well, no, because it's a picture of that month there was no conception of life. Whether it was simply because the woman's not married yet, and so that she's not having sex, and she's not going to conceive, or husband and wife couldn't conceive during that month, there's a discharge of what should have been life in the biological order of things. There's a, there's a bloody death that happens every month. And so with the spilling of blood, when anytime in Scripture when blood is outside the body, it's, it's, in, a, it's in a corrupted, contaminated version of itself. And so with the flow comes... Uh, an unholiness and uncleanness, because God is the God of life. He's always bringing things into life. So if you have, then, if that's true for the, the normal heterosexual situation, if you have people choosing to enter into sexual relationship that, that is always going to be inherently barren, that is a culture of death from God's eyes. It has nothing to do, it has nothing to do with the, you know, Fred and Sally or whoever, the, the person's he loves them as people, and he wants them to want to love life and not love themselves more than life. And that's part of this problem with homosexuality or with any sin. Any sin is we choose the sin 
because it brings us pleasure, us gratification, or us immediate whatever, rather than choosing to submit ourselves to Father's will, the Father's will, God's will, and say, you know, right now, I want this thing, but your will be done. And so we, we find that there are many people who have homosexual tendencies, but they repent of them and they don't act on them. And they're married and have healthy lifestyles and all this kind of stuff. So it's doable. But is that a healthy lifestyle if you're negating this part of you out of fear of retribution in the afterlife? Uh, yeah. Right, because yeah. the common theme is this thing is against nature, but in nature you find examples of this happening. And so if it was purely out of a desire or some will to sin, why would God make animals do this? Well, uh, the animals that do it, it's a few and far between. It's exception to the rule. Yeah, but right? statistically, homosexuality is yep. not as common as right. heterosexuality. Yeah, I, and I'm really glad that you brought that up. <laughs> that is absolutely true. And it's, it is an existence, but we live in a broken world. God didn't create this situation. That's another thing that people want to say who are advocates for it. Well, you know, God didn't make a mistake. I don't know if you saw recently the Dylan Mulvaney thing. Um, she's, he's the girl who's, he's the guy who's living as a girl for 365 days or something. I don't know, something like this. But on stage, he said, you know, he's singing this Disney-type song and talking about his life as a girl, and, and he says that God didn't make a mistake, and he hopes that someday he can find out from God that God didn't make a mistake. Well, that's a misunderstanding of the, of the conversation. Yeah, God didn't make a mistake. He doesn't make mistakes. We broke God's world. This is a broken snow globe. And so in a broken snow globe, you're going to find cracks, and you're going to find leaks, and you're going to find things that work outside the, the, the norm. There are mutations and there are distortions or whatever. So when you see in nature you know, a dog humping another dog, and they're both male or whatever, that's not normal. And, and we all look at that and go, not normal. No life's going to come from that. But is normal bad? I mean, people driving cars isn't normal. Us flying in planes isn't normal. We do a lot. Our daily lives are not normal. Us wearing clothes like this is not normal. It's not normal to wear clothes? Well, you could argue not these clothes. I mean, in the Bible, it says not to wear clothes of a mixed cloth. And how many of us do that every single day? Yeah. Do you know why it says that? I, I don't, actually. So all of those... Seeming, um, seemingly just random. arbitrary, weird, random rules are all about Israel living around false idols. So the Canaanites, right? They're, Israel is brought into a land that's filled already with idolatry. Egypt. Well, they're brought out of Egypt into Canaan, into the promised land, which is now the Palestine. Right? So this is after Exodus. Yes, yeah, so they exit out, right, Exodus, and they're, they're brought into this land that's already occupied by the Canaanites. And the Canaanites are the ones who wish, worship Baal, Asarta, Anat, Moloch, all these guys. And their lifestyles included mixed uh, fabric clothing, things like that. Another one that's brought up in this conversation with LGBTQ stuff is, you know, a man should not wear a woman's clothing. And they're like, well, why? What's the big deal? Or a woman shouldn't wear man's clothing in, uh, in the Bible. What's the big deal? Well, it's not about, you know, my wife wearing Levi's. That's not the conversation. The conversation is God tells Israel, don't live a life that looks like the Baal worshipers, because you worship me. So live a life that's set apart. And so all those seemingly arbitrary rules that we make, they make no sense to our modern perception. They're actually to keep them from worshiping a false god, which I would say is exactly with the same issue today, maybe in a different way, 
But I would say the LGBTQ are worshiping different gods than than Yahweh, than Christ, you know, God, the the triune God. And so I wouldn't say that you wearing mixed cotton or whatever type of shirt you're wearing is uh, not normal. I'd say it's very much normal for our day and age. And in the secularized world we live in, there is absolutely zero idolatry built into what you, why you put that on. Yeah, but isn't that purely an interpretation of the word, not what the actual scripture says? I think a lot of people find problem in a strict view of the gospel or a view similar to yours that takes this stance on homosexuality is they do this and yet they dismiss a lot of other sins that just get swept under and they say, oh, well, you know, modern interpretation blocks this out. And so they're they're using this subjective interpretation for these sins that they just brush aside, but then they're using a very objective, literal sense when it comes to homosexuality. And there are people that believe if you interpret the parts about homosexuality, it was more in reference to adult men having sexual relations with boys, not necessarily a mutual aspect of love and homosexuality amongst adults. Yeah, the inconsistency of how we're treating sin is absolutely a problem. We have to own that as the church. Um, We have to be consistent with all sin being sin and address it as such and not give a free pass to different sin. you're heterosexual, hetero, heterosexual, and you're you know shacking up with your girlfriend, having sex outside of marriage, just because it's culturally acceptable today for everyone to do that. You come to the church, I know about it. We're having a conversation, and you're not communing. I mean, you're not until you're repentant of that sin. We have to treat that for everything. Now, some sins don't, you know, they're not such a high-profile situation like, um, you know, me. I might storm out of here when we're done and say, F that Nick Flores, right? And am I going to be barred from the from the communion rail for that? Well, if I harbor ha- hatred in my heart toward you, yeah, and it doesn't go away, the, the, the pastor, the priest, whoever, should call me to task on that and say, hey, look, man, you're not repentant of your sin, and that is a sin that is equally you know, uh, bad in God's eyes as the most abominable one. So get back in the studio and tell Nick Flores you're sorry. Okay, Dad, I will. Sorry, Nick. Uh, but that you nailed it. We have to be consistent, and that is ownership that is part of this problem. Like I mentioned, you know, we're on this precipice. I don't want in 75 years for my, uh, you know, the people who come after me to be in this complete dark world where they're not even allowed to say anything. Well, if my predecessors 50 years ago would have been consistent on these things, we wouldn't be having this conversation. We lost the homosexual marriage debate when we lost the divorce debate. When when no-fault divorce was welcomed in, we lost the Oberfell in 2015. Yeah, but that's an extreme version, right? Because in the Bible, it also says that if a man rapes a virgin, that she has to take him as her husband, and he cannot divorce her. I mean, the Bible has some, you could say, wonky things. The Bible also talks about the proper form of slavery and how you should treat your slave in reference to certain things. And Yeah. Like, where does that come into play? Because you could argue, well, a thousand years ago, we lost all of this when we gave up slavery, or that slavery was diminished in certain ways. Or back in our founding, when we gave up slavery, that that is when we started going downhill. When we gave up slavery? Well, when slavery was abolished, right? We started going downhill? Yeah, you could argue that that tracks with your logic right here, where, oh, when we lost the marriage divorce thing, 
Mm. What's the difference between that versus no. slavery? Both are encouraged in the Bible, or not encouraged, but talked about how to do formally. Oh yeah, no, no. Um, I think I might be misunderstood. I'm talking about the inconsistency. Uh, when we when we started treating divorce flippantly, like that it, it wasn't a, a problem to God. We had no no place to stand to to have a conversation on homosexuality. Yeah, but that's the same thing with the rape situation. Yeah, and that's. I'm not going to address that because I don't think you're you're interpreting it right, and I don't have it in front of me to look at it. I but you know, bring it up. You got it in front of me. Cool. I don't know if I wrote that one down. Oh, come on, unfortunately, Nick. come on, help I me have, out. Buddy. I know. Come on, help me out. I believe I, for some so, reason I want to say it's in Leviticus. So rephrase it for me. I believe that if a man rapes a virgin who is unwed, she has to take him as her husband, and he can never divorce her. I believe. So what pretty, that's going to be? Just shooting from not without the text in front of me to look at it particularly, but what is that, what that's saying is that man needs to own up to this problem, right? He needs, he's committed. So this is actually a, a commandment that's going to end up protecting the woman from somebody who has the, the liberty just to rape her and leave, right? Which would be terrible. Well, Which to is, rape in, it, well, rape rape in, in itself, itself is horrible. Is terrible. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, I mean, this kind of a rule applied to today's culture would solve our father this problem. Yeah, but how, I mean... Wouldn't that be crazy to apply that today? <laughs> yeah, it would. Yeah. Um, so again, we got to look at this through the lens of Christ. But always see, through Christ. It's, it feels like we're adapting these nope, rules never. to modern times. So in the church, we talk about the law being fulfilled by Christ, right? And so we have the understanding, especially ceremonial laws, that they, when Christ came, he is the fulfillment of the law. That And, and Paul's very clear that that doesn't mean the law is dismissed. It means that when we sin... We're now forgiven of our sins in Christ, right? So it is a freedom of, under Christ. It is not meant to say, as he tells us in Romans, that we get to just go sin carte blanche and like, oh yeah, party, right? No, we still, as a Christian, I want to keep the law. So as a Christian, I'm going to look at that Leviticus text and say, well, one, rape is awful, and two, you know, the, the burden of all that stuff that's put on me is going to keep me from wanting to live that lifestyle. I'm not. I'm not going to be some guy going around ra raping women, right? So it's meant to tell us how to live. What, And this is the message that's being lost, I think, throughout the entire controversy and conversation, is that with repentance, the consistency is there. All of it's there. Christ does, I mean, all the arbitrary, weird, weird random ones, we can't just take them out of context, cherry-pick them, plop them into America 2023. And it's not, that's not sweeping them under the rug or anything. It's saying we want to look at it the way the author wrote the book. We, we can't have a reader response view of, of Scripture. We don't get to do like they're doing right now and have sensitivity readers to cull through Ian Fleming's James Bond and take out all the words that make us feel uncomfortable or get rid of Dr. Seuss or Roald Dahl or any of those guys and, and, and after they're dead, redact their language to make us. That's not what we're saying. We're not arguing for that. Those laws are still revealed Scripture. Leviticus is where you said that one's from. Revealed scripture. That yeah, don't quote me on that. Yeah. I could be off. <laughs> well, and I don't have it in front of me too. I mean, the Bible is a a lifelong, you know, expansive book. And so when I'm when I'm preaching on a text, I look at that text and I'm focusing on that area. And over time, I'm building up my understanding of all this stuff, right? And that's why we go to seminary and we, we stand on the shoulders of others and we look at what the church has always taught, which is also part of this problem. The church has always taught these things. Why? And now all of a sudden, five minutes ago, we're changing our tune on it. Is really weird to me, but. We want to be able to look at what the author says, and the author being God, not what Nick and Ty want it to say. 
we cannot have a reader response. And that is a that's part and parcel to the problem with the LGBTQ culture is it's not that the church is highlighting one particular sin. It's it's actually, I mean, we're not, to rephrase that, we're not the ones starting this fight now in our hot button issue and this 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 reiteration of it. It's that the LGBTQ people are trying to say the church is no longer no longer has a voice on this, that the Bible no longer means anything. We're now a science people. Those things are just relics that don't have a, a meaning. Well, okay, if you think that God's law was for then in that culture and that it has zero application, sure, but that's a that's the too literal reading of the text. If you're if you're always coming at it from a hermeneutic of Christ is the point that even for Leviticus and the Israelites, everything they had to live under was so that they would start to lean on God and focus on the promise that he gave them to follow his will, whatever his will would be. I mean, God could tell you not to ever wear that hat again. The idea is that you want to trust God knows what he's doing, and you're going to do it. It may seem completely arbitrary to you. So in the Old Testament, we're looking at it from 4,000 years later, a different culture, different perspective, and we're like, that's bizarro. So it must not mean anything. No, no, absolutely not. You know, G.K. Chesterton says, you come upon a white fence in a pasture, don't think you just knock down the fence. You know, you, you look at this fence and you're like, well, I don't see a danger on this side and I don't see a danger on that side, so whoever put this fence up must no longer need it. I'm going to take out the fence. Because then what comes over the hill is the dragon that the fence was keeping out. Right? This is Chesterton's wisdom. So we don't get to look at Leviticus and say, it makes no sense to me, so doesn't matter. I'm, I'm done with it. We have to actually ask the question, why doesn't it make sense to me? What am I not getting from the author's perspective? What was the author trying to say? Not what do I want it to say. We have to do some exegesis, not eisegesis. I don't know if you're familiar with those language, but we, we don't eisegesis as you read into the text what you want it to say. We all have presuppositions. We all have biases. We all come to God's word and the church as conveyor of it with our own presuppositions, our own baggage. And and eisegesis is saying, you know, I really want God to tell me this is okay because I like doing it. So we end up reading into the text that it's okay. And that's how we get to, to uh, interpretations of, well, most of the time the text here when it's talking about homosexuality means a man and his young boy. Well, no, actually, when you look at the text, it doesn't. It, th that was pre prevalent, but, but Paul is doing more than just talking. He could have used five other different words for that situation. But what he's, what he's clearly talking about is all of this. And, if, and every time you look at homosexuality, especially with Paul in the New Testament, every time it's mentioned, so is heterosexual fornication. That's always mentioned, too. So is you know, things like uh, bestiality and you know, all of this kind of stuff. It's all mentioned. Well, we're not bringing up bestiality because it's not on the topic yet. I mean, maybe someday. I mean, LGBTQIA+, I mean, maybe it's part there. Yeah, I don't know. But if that gets starting to get pushed toward as a common, normal thing, you, you bet the church is going to speak against it. Right? So the idea here is we want to let the author speak for himself. We want to come to the Bible and say, I'm going to submit myself to the, the scriptures, and I'm going to let his word norm me, and back to our word normal. And this is really at the heart of one of the things of what's going on. I want to be normed by God, not normed by the world. And that's what the LGBTQ are doing right now, is they're trying to, from their own language, queer the world. Well, what does the word queer mean? 
odd, right? The, the intentionality here is not, has nothing to do with sex. All of this stuff we've been talking about so far, it's all kind of beside the point. The real issue is odding God's norm. So if we look at nature and we look at his revealed word, we have, so we have general revelation, what we can see in nature, what we can see in our own conscience, the things we know. Um, and then we have special revelation. We have scripture, what God has revealed about himself. If we look at both of these things and we see how life works, how things are supposed to be, then we are supposed to aim for the, the truth, the goodness, and the beauty that are going to harness those and make them make this a flourishing culture and, and, and society. What we're dealing with right now is a movement of people who would rather not be normed and put in that box for whatever reason, but are now intentionally auditing it. In the church, we see this as spiritual warfare against God, and it's exactly what, I mean, all the, all the sort of cliche things, right? Sodom and Gomorrah, Babel, you know, Babel all this, it's, it's the, it is a repeat. It's, we're, we're constantly on a loop, and that's not just them. At the individual level, we're constantly on the loop. I'm constantly resisting God. Like I talked about when we first sat down, I'm constantly looking at my conscience and saying, what am I doing that's wrong? How can I live a better life? I'm getting off the internet. It's making me a horrible person. It's a cesspool, right? Like it's dark, it's dirty. I'm off of that. So we do this at a personal level. We do it at an individual level. If we if we allow the Lord to speak for himself and say, I don't understand what was going on with that Leviticus text, but I do get the principle that rape is bad and that there's consequences to things, then we start to read more texts and we say, okay, well, this makes sense. This makes sense. Oh, now this makes more sense. So I'm going to go back to the Leviticus text and take a look at this again. And now we build our understanding, right? Yeah, but that piece of text would never be something that we implement today. No. Well, we do that, actually. I mean, we force women to no, marry their rapists. No, but we do have parameters on responsibility. Yeah, but that seems like that. pretty. But yeah, the, the extreme is not forced. Yeah, for sure. But that seems pretty cut and dry in the word of scripture that this is what, in this event, do this. Yep. Yeah, there's case law for sure in Scripture, and that's another part of this is that there there are blanket Ten Commandments. This is universal for everyone, and then there are you know if if this person happened, this thing happens, this happens. There's case law involved. But that um, kind of ties into the disparity of what we preach versus what we practice, right? And going back into the mixed cloth thing, that's an assumption. We're assuming that the clothes that we wear that are of mixed cloth aren't paganistic or aren't under some false god thing, but I'm not making these clothes. I'm wearing them daily. Yeah, yeah that's a good and point. It, and so, it is a sin, but we dismiss that sin. You would never watch me come into church <laughs> with mixed cloth on and say, No, I wouldn't say it's a sin. We're going to have a problem. Yeah, no, no, no. It, no, there's, you know, there's... But again, we're interpreting it, because in the word of Scripture, it is a sin. This is something you do not do. And we're taking that and applying it to our world today and saying, well, we don't really have these pagan practices. It probably wouldn't be applicable. But that's a loose interpretation. If we're doing this strict interpretation across the board, this is something you do not do, and we all do it. Well, that's what I'm saying. It's not a strict interpretation across the board in that sense of but, always reading literal. There, there's also understanding the genre and the text. But then that, it gets so dicey Peter, because we're it does get dicey. strict when we want it to be strict and loose when we want it to be loose. And I think that's where people find an issue. I think that's the understanding. Uh, but when, when Peter um, has a vision, this is after Christ is... is ascended into heaven, and he has a vision that he can now eat unclean things. Are you familiar with this? 
I'm not, but okay. I, I have a cursory understanding of the unclean yep, and the yep. blood and, 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 all, and all of that goes with the fabric and all, all these rules, right? So he has this vision, this dream that he can now eat unclean things and he protests. He's like, Lord, I've never once eaten an unclean thing. I'm not doing it now. And, and what's the point of this is, is presented is that everything that God has made is good and holy. And there was a time when, when the Israelites were under the law as a pedagogue, as a teacher. You familiar with the language of pedagogy? So pedagogy is, is what our kids are under you know, at school. There's a schoolmaster who's teaching them, and, and he's teaching them according to a certain curriculum for certain outcomes. And so you're going to start with 2 plus 2 so that once you master the, the addition, you can get to the multiplication, right? So what is revealed, and, and maybe this will clear this up for you, Nick, is when Peter has this vision, what, it, what is revealed by the Holy Spirit is that what was once forbidden for a particular time under the, under the pedagogy of the law to keep Israel holy, but also to keep Israel clean and healthy, there's also that aspect that we haven't covered yet, is that you know, there wasn't modern medicine, there wasn't all these different things, and the Lord was tending to Israel in the time that they lived and existed. You know, if, if you slept with one of these, one of the unholy rules is you don't have sex with your, your wife when she's in her menstruation cycle, right? Well, you might think, well, okay, it's gross or whatever, but why would that be a rule that God would put in place? There are, there are health issues and stuff that are going on in a, in a society that don't have running water. <laughs> they, don't, they don't have access to medicine and things like that. So there, there's, there's a time and a place is the point there. And then when Peter gets his vision and he protests, like you're saying, like, well, it's, we should be consistent. Come on, let's be consistent. And he says that the time for those rigid laws are done because now we're entering into the time of the gospel, which is the, the, the distinction between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We now live under the New Covenant, the New Testament, meaning Christ has fulfilled all those things you're bringing up. All these old ceremonial laws, they've been fulfilled in Christ. Does that mean we look at them and we say, we're just going to dismiss them out of hand? No, we're going to understand them for what they were, but we're also going to understand we're not going to lose sight of the fact that we live in Christ, and Christ fulfilled those. And so Christ was able to tell Peter through the Holy Spirit, you can now eat bacon, enjoy, right? And, and he can do that. Paul's going to deal with this too in his own way in Galatians. Paul's teaching the Galatian church that they are free in the gospel, circumcision is no longer necessary, which is really kind of this exact conversation. Should have went there a long time ago. Maybe it would have cleared it up for you. Paul says, you are running the race well that I taught you. You're free in Christ. You're devoted to him. You're living to him. You're, you're worshiping him. You're, you've given your life to him. But now here's someone has come along. These, he calls them Judaizers, these, these men of the law. And they're trying to put you back into slavery under this strict literal interpretation. He's trying to, they're, they're trying to say, yeah, you can have Jesus. That's all well and good, but you also got to circumcise yourselves. And Paul's like, wait a minute. That's no longer necessary. And they say, well, no, you, if you want to know you're saved, you got to do what the Lord said for all the Old Testament people. Paul says, not no more under Christ. Under Christ, all of that has been absorbed, not, not dismissed, absorbed and fulfilled. So now we are free in the gospel. And then what Paul will end up doing, he has you know, two famous pastors under him, Timothy and Titus. One of them gets circumcised. One of them doesn't. He specifically says, I'm going to show you how gracious God is by not circumcising them. Um, the other one, they're, they're bound up by, by too free, too freedom, too much freedom. And he's like, no, nah, we're going to circumcise this guy because you guys think it's just a license to sin. So he's showing the balance there. Um, but but we, 
we should have started that with that perhaps for you, Nick, that this idea that it's not just random arbitrary laws and we're picking and choosing. That is absolutely right. And that's the problem. And I mentioned we we got to own that. We got to be consistent. And I still got that story to tell you, so don't let forget. Um, but we also want to recognize that Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament law. He, he lived He lived all these things for us. And this is on purpose. You and I can't get to heaven if we're still under this system of the law. Because the law demands perfection. And, and God says, one misstep and you're done. And he is He is the just God. So whether whether you're stealing bubble gum from the the convenience store or you rape a chick equally in guys God's eyes what you said is true those are sins and you're done it you broke the law so what do we need we need a just god how does a just god deal with every single one of us being broken he sends somebody to die for us in our sin we one of us needs to be able to live a perfect life that's what Jesus did. He lived a perfect life under the law, and when he died, he died as a substitutionary atonement for us. And, and the, the jargony language for that is penal substitutionary atonement. Penal meaning punishment, like the penal system. Substitute, like your substitute teacher who steps in for your, your real teacher when she's sick. And atonement, that you are, you are brought into relationship once again with God. The sort of Sunday school version of that is you're, you're made at one, at atone, with God. So... Jesus becomes that sacrifice under the law to, to take your punishment as a substitute so that we all go to heaven. So now everyone, this is John 3.16, right? It's like, for God to love the world, he, he died for all of us. So now everyone, LGBTQ, Pastor Bramwell, whatever, we're all saved by Christ. The only thing now that we're dealing with our hard hearts and, and irre, unrepentance, irrepentance, making up words as we go, unrepentance when we step outside of that. So all we're trying to do is bring people back under the grace of the, of the gospel. Your line of, of questions, great, great conversation. And I'm sorry, I got, I got to apologize for not taking us straight to Galatians or straight to Peter. That might have cleared things up. But your line of questioning is, is really indicative of our way of seeing think we want to go under the law. We want to get back to the law. And we want to be able to say, this is a law and it's dumb. I don't like it. How do I get out from under it? Jesus. Well, yeah, but then why don't we extend that to homosexuality? When Jesus absolved us of these things and absorbed some of those laws, just like how you can now eat bacon and you don't have to feel bad, <laughs> why do we not extend that same grace to homosexuality? Why do we not extend the same idea that, oh, maybe in the past this was not okay, or viewed in this light because it would have affected population growth. It would have maybe been unclean and led to some disease mm -hmm. where now we have these modern utensils and modern, not utensils, but modern <laughs> interventions. Yeah. It's now okay because population is growing. We don't, if people get sick, we have these medical interventions. Why do we not treat it the same as we treat bacon? When Jesus died and he absolved us of all of this stuff, we still don't extend that same grace to this particular group. Yeah, well, it's not to the particular group. It's it's to the particular action or the the sin, right? And so we it's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of repentance. But I don't have to repent for eating bacon. No, because that has you're right. And I'm sorry, I'm still confusing you. But there is uh, there is a sense of um, there is the ceremonial law, 
right? There, there's the law that the Israelites were given, and um, much of that was for their theocratic nation, right? They, it was it was all encompassing. It was so. What we read in the Old Testament in in that we get we get both the Ten Commandments, which still is something we keep, and and you notice in the Ten Commandments there's not all the different like really arbitrary things, but then we also have the, those ceremonial laws that have been fulfilled that are now you're free to eat bacon. You can eat the shellfish. It's okay. Um, you might want to actually say there's some wisdom in why they didn't, and you see some people, some Christians are like that. We're like, well, okay, so why didn't they? What was the health benefit? Or, you know, it, I, I would argue that you can go too far down that road. I, I would say this whole line of reasoning is, is still trying to trap the homosexual in his sin, and that's not the goal. We're never trying to trap him, but we are trying to—the the Lord does reveal that there is still sin— these things over here, like eating shellfish, may lo- no longer be classified as sinful because the Lord himself gave that vision to Peter, Peter that he could eat anything, and all things were made. And, and maybe this gets to the point as well, who made that shellfish? Who made that pig, right? The Lord did. Uh, why? Well, for his purpose, and we can use that. And he opened it up to the Gentiles, or to the Jews for the Gentiles. And some of that is part of this conversation too, that you know, that was, the, that was a, a rule for the Jews, for the Israelites, right? Old Testament period, and in the in this cultural time, the historical time when the the uh, the gates were opened up and the Gentiles were brought into the fold, and that which is part of this vision for Peter, what else was brought in? Well, he did away with these things that are going to be roadblocks for the Gentiles. Like, what do you mean if I'm going to be a Christian, I can't eat bacon, right? What do you mean if I'm going to be a Christian, I I have to be circumcised? And that's where Paul says, no, no, no. Those are those, those are the pedagogy of the of the Jews in the Old Testament. They've been fulfilled and done away with. As the Gentiles are being grafted into this tree, some of those things are done, but not all of them. We still can't have false gods. We still can't have uh, sex outside of marriage. We still can't you know, murder people. I mean, all the, the Ten Commandments are still at play for Jew and Gentile alike. But the, the commandments that were specifically given to the Jews on top of the 10, right? The, all the Leviticus, all the ceremonial rules and the, 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 what we would say, like, um, you know, our, in, in DC, there's probably warehouses full of codes and ordinances and policies, right? And nobody can even read them. You read, look at your politicians. They don't read that stuff, right? Yeah. They're just signing it through. Right. Exactly. So all of that, the, the volumes of law for the Israelites, that doesn't apply to the, that doesn't apply to the New Testament era church. Is that making sense? Still not yes. there? No, yes, Kinda the expansion there? to include these Gentiles, but then I could still make the argument, why does that not include yeah, and this particular group of Gentiles? That's a good question to ask God, but he does reveal, I mean, in New Testament, after after the opening up of the gate, bringing in the Gentiles, we still have enumerated sins. You know, Paul has a long list of sins, various places throughout the New Testament, at Jesus himself, um, and, and in those sins... Is still homosexuality. That, that that's true enough, um, and it's and it's really it's just a subcategory of sexual sin. It's not the sin, right? Um, God doesn't. Sex is good. Maybe I should back up and say that sex is good, right? Sex outside of marriage is bad. Therefore, homosexual sin, homosexuality is bad. Because by definition, according to God, not according to the Supreme Court, according to God, 
Jesus, marriage is between a man and a woman. So the place for good, God-appropriate sex is in the marriage bed between a man and a woman. So by God's definition, it has nothing, I mean, we're not really even dealing with the idea of what type of sex it is. It's sex outside of God's instituted marriage bed. So it could be sex between man and man, woman and woman, child and man, the whole maps thing that's going on. I mean, the pedophilia kind of thing. I mean, what's the what's the the core denominator is sex outside of the definition of marriage. Man and woman, right? Shacking up, Netflix and chill, whatever they want to call it. That outside of marriage is sinful, and we know that. In addition, I mean, you see your Old Testament laws, but in it, we still get that in the New Testament too. Uh, scholars much more brilliant than me, theologians much more brilliant than me, and they can articulate it in probably five minutes rather than, what are we at, three hours or whatever? Um, and we're still not there yet. I still haven't like thrown the dart to where you're like, oh, I get it. So that's on me. That's a, that's a Thai thing, not a, not a Christianity thing. We still have these enumerated sins. We, we can identify by looking at the New Testament. This is wrong. What do you make of the churches that are negating that? Are moving towards a more inclusive church. I believe the Pope came out and said that homosexuality is no longer a sin. Yeah. Do you feel like you were going into the minority? Yeah, I think we are. Um, I think Scripture is clear in the New Testament that we are not to follow the ways of the world. We are to be transformed, not conformed. And it is so re uh, abundantly repeated in the New Testament that this is a temptation. We are always going to want to go with the flow. We always want to be part of the cool kids. And, and and this might be a real casual way of saying that, but that's what we're dealing with. We're scratching itching ears. So as we've seen denomination after denomination after denomination cave to the, you know, the, the alphabet squad or whatever, that's what we're seeing, is we're seeing a pressure to get with the times. This isn't, you know, I hear in the city hall meetings and stuff, this is not 1950, this is 2023. What I say to that is God's unchanging, he says that he, you know, this is the way it is. If it was true for Paul in the New Testament, you know, in the first century, it's still true today. And when we look at Revelation, we we got a really clear. This is a really powerful one in in uh, the letter to the Ephesian church in uh, Re Revelation two. It, there's all kinds of sexual sin going on, and and the Lord says, "Don't be like the Nicolaitans who are teaching this is okay." They're teaching that you can you can have the sexual morality and still be a Christian because they're going against God's will. God says, that doesn't please me. I don't like that. So we're, we're again, we want to get back to this repentant heart. And I think it, you know, Luther, Luther saw the Pope during the Reformation. He, he saw the papacy was, I mean, they had the homosexuality, the popes and bishops and stuff. They were they had boys. They had the whole thing, right? The, the man and the boys, and they, they were keeping it. And he says, "What an you know, what an abomination this is. We're doing this, and we're and they know it's wrong, and they still do it, and and it was a problem. It's a problem. We gotta we gotta recognize our sin and and submit it to God and say, I don't want to live like this. I I want I might want to do this. I might feel the cultural pressure to do it. But what do you say, Dad?" What do you want me to do? What are the house rules? Can I keep the car after midnight? Or do I have to have it back in time? Like, what What? What do you want me to do? Um, so back to, real, before I forget. Your the, story. The story. Yeah, let me tell you the story. 
two of them from my time in Salt Lake. I was a pastor in Salt Lake before I came to Ferndale the first time. And uh, one of these stories is to your point on consistency, and we have to own our, our, our stupidity and our mistakes, and we have created this problem that we're, the church now finds itself in. And then the other, the other one is on a homosexual situation in particular. So I was teaching confirmation class, teaching a group of eighth graders prior to taking communion, right? They've been baptized. They've, they've grown up in the church to one degree or another. Now they want to take communion. They're, they're, they're getting to the point where they need to understand exactly what's going on. And we're teaching the sixth commandment. Then the sixth commandment is about not having adultery. And all the sexual sins fall under this commandment. And so here I am. I'm talking. I'm, I'm talking to eighth graders. And it's awkward. And it's weird. And everybody has giggles and questions and whatever. And there's this girl sitting there quiet. She's not squirming. She's not giggling. She's bothered. And we're talking about homosexuality and how that's, you know, because it's not marriage, it falls under the category of sex outside of marriage and all these kind of things like I just mentioned. And that clicked for her. And she said, Pastor, if what you said is true, then how come my mom, who's had six, seven boyfriends, in the recent years, has been able to come to take communion with no problem. And obviously, she she knew they were having sex. Like, it was like live-in type boyfriends or whatever. She knew, right? And I said, it's absolutely a problem. So, well, you say we can't, you know, we can't take communion, and, and, and if we're, if we're homosexual, we're, we're, we're displeasing to God, and we're not repentant, and we're doing bad things, we're sinning. But no one's told my mom that she's sinning. What's the deal? So this eighth grader, and kids have amazing BS radars, right? And she was like, I identify a problem with the church. And that's absolutely true. The church, the pastors, let me not even put it on the church, pastors need to nut up and be able to take the bites from the sheep. So you come to me and you, I find out, I don't know your marriage situation or whatever, but you're cheating on your wife. I, as a faithful pastor, have something to say about that now. I really wish you wouldn't have done that from a selfish perspective because I don't want to have to talk to you about it, right? It's going to be uncomfortable. And you may get pissed and leave, and you'll never come back to the church. That's not on me. Again, this is part of that. I got to be able to say no to the sign. I'm not taking it down and and you know show that you can do hard things and the world doesn't end. For a pastor, I got to be able to tell the sinner in front of me who I know and I'm a, I, I love, they're a friend of mine, they're a congregation member, I've had life experiences with them. I got to say, dude, what you're doing is wrong, and you neither, either need to repent or I can't commune you. I, I mean, I, I, I can't forgive you if you're not actually repentant, so, and then run the risk of that person leaving. Well, what's more important? Speaking truth and hopefully saving their soul so that they avoid that train that's coming, or holding my tongue and pretending like it's no big deal so they stick around and I have to deal with the, the hard conversation. That girl identified that all the pastors before had not had the hard conversation. That's the epidemic in the church right now. Pastors don't want a shepherd. We want to just sit by, we want to sit in our offices and read the Bible and think about all these wonderful transcendent things and hang out with old ladies and potlucks and or whatever they want to do. And nobody wants to preach to the hundred pissed off people in front of their church. Nobody wants to say to a friend across from the table, if you keep that up, there's going to be bad consequences for you because the messenger is going to get attacked. 
And this has been the case. Yep. Had a situation where had to tell somebody that living together, this actual thing, living together is not God pleasing. You need to be married if you want to keep living this lifestyle. Well, he took his ball and he went home. He didn't want to play no more. He was done. That hurts the whole church, everybody. And so the temptation is always to say, oh, it's okay. Let's just, I mean, they're a nice little couple. Look how sweet they look. And they're sitting in the pew. It's sweet. It's nice. And we pretend that it still grieves God that they're having sex outside of marriage. So to your point, consistency is a big part of the problem. we got to own it. And we can look at those, those, uh, those verses that are in the Old Testament, and we can say what has been fulfilled, what has not been fulfilled, what is still being called out as sin and we need to repent of. Can we eat bacon? Can we not? We have to ask those questions, have those hard conversations, look at the Bible, not just you know paraphrase off the top of our head, but actually open the Bible and get into those texts. I would have served you much better if I had brought my Bible, so sorry about that. Next story, the original story I want to tell you is I was in Salt Lake again. I had just got there, and I'm you know when pastors get to a new call, they start looking up church members and calling people and getting to know who they are and introducing ourselves. So I'm going through the list, and I, I had this uh, sort of... Uh, list of people that were sort of delinquent, no one had seen in a long time. So I, I I call this number, and this girl answers, young girl, 22, 21, 23, something like that. And long and short of it, she said, oh, pastor, don't waste your time with me. I'm a lesbian, and I haven't been welcomed in the church in forever. I said, well, okay, so you're a lesbian, but why haven't you been welcomed in the church? Well, nobody wants me there. They, they, they make it seem like I'm not allowed. Well, okay, you are allowed. Please come, and you are welcome. Can we talk? Okay, sure. So we go have coffee. And we end up having coffee several times. And in the course of those conversations, I tell her, homosexuality is a sin. God loves you. God doesn't want you to sin. God wants you to come into the house and receive the sacrament. He wants you to receive the gospel. He wants you to live. Okay, great. So I want all those things. Okay, great. So you don't want to be a lesbian anymore. Well, no, I want to still be a lesbian. Okay, hold on. So as soon as you want to repent of that sin, you can have all the rest. I don't understand, Pastor. So why would you want to take communion? If you don't, if communion is for sinners, that's what communion's for. It's for sinners who want forgiveness. But you don't think you're a sinner. You don't think your your sexual relationship with this girl is sinful. But then you want to say the church is keeping you from taking communion. We're not keeping you from anything. You're making a choice, like an adult, that you want this lifestyle. Okay, great. But that means you don't get this one. That happens all the time. As soon as you want to recognize that being a lesbian it grieves God, for whatever reason, I mean, you don't have to understand the reasoning, but that the book says that, and you repent of it, and you don't want to live that way no more, this avenue becomes open to you again. It's medicine for immor of, of immortality, right? So it's medicine. If you don't think you need the medicine, why would you take it? And that's really the rub of this. Um, Sam Smith and uh, Kim Petra, whatever, did the unholy thing on the Grammys. In the post-interview, Kim Petra said, the church doesn't want me. I, wanted, I was curious about the church. The church didn't want me. So I'm do, we're doing our own church, and we're you know we're unholy and do all. And she's trying to like frame the song and the and the performance in that way. The church wants everyone. We don't not not want you, but we don't want you in the church and still living in your sinfulness. That's that's the thing. We want to bring you in, and show you the light of Christ, show you His way, 
and have you live that way. Are you going to do it perfectly? No. And that's another thing. None of us are saying you have to do this perfectly. It's about repentance. I sin all the time, every day. And that's, as you're as a Christian, you learn you sin more and more and more. You start off thinking, yeah, I'm a pretty good person. You know, I think I've broke the Ten Commandments once or twice. Maybe I haven't murdered anybody, but yeah, I had that one sexual thing. Yeah, I probably sinned a couple times. By the time you learn about your faith and you learn what Scripture is saying, a minute doesn't go by without sin. I mean, it's a matter of the heart. So you need to you need more and more and more and more of Scripture because you're seeing just how pervasive it is. And that's really what all this is about, is we're not hating people. We want to bring healing. We, we want to bring truth, objective truth, um, in, in a cohesive way. And, and I, I fumble that sometimes. I don't do the best job of, of conveying that. Like, I fumbled into this sign, the original sign. I stumbled into that thing. I didn't, I didn't mean for this to happen, but it happened. And so now what? Now we bring the gospel of Christ to people. And we are. People are coming. Um, and so you feel like you sin daily still with the amount of knowledge that you have oh man. in regard to Scripture. The more knowledge you have, the more you realize how much you sin. And so I have to tie this back in. What is the difference between that continual sin and someone continually sinning by living with someone of the same sex? Repentance. And married? Repentance. But what if they repent and still sin, just like how you still sin? Well, yeah. Well, I'm not sinning on purpose, right? I'm, I, I recognize sin. I'm not committing. I'm not engaging in it intentionally. That, and but that's it, where Ro- that's where Romans, you know, Paul is saying in Romans, we don't we don't find out. Okay, this is a sin, but I'm forgiven, so I can just go do it. It's it's not permission; it's description. So I recognize I'm sinful by living in this sinful world, and you know, I'll I'll lash out at my wife, or I'll you know, I'll do something stupid, um, and that's not that I set out to do that. Where with homosexuality or any sort of lifestyle sin. It's an intentionality. And, yeah, and but every an decision is an it. intentionality. When you lash out at your wife, there is a brief moment, no matter how brief, where you make the decision, I'm going to lash out. You are in control of your emotions throughout every second of every day. Whether you recognize it or not, it is, it's still a decision. Yeah. You know, Paul will talk about that in the sense of, I am no longer the sinner. The sinner is, is within me. I'm, I'm at battle with myself. And so he would say that that would be a case of the sinner getting the upper hand, right? So he would actually detach that, and, and not in like a bipolar way, um, maybe someone would make that argument, but he would detach that from that lashing out, I gave in to the temptation, but it was not my intent, it was not my goal. Isn't that so, a cop-out? How is that a cop-out? By saying, oh, there's this thing inside of me, and sometimes it gets the upper hand, and I couldn't help myself. Isn't that negating your your just your freedom to choose that you're saying oh it wasn't me making this decision it was this thing inside of me that desires to sin well that thing is still you you can choose to create this imaginary distinction but at the end of the day it's still you <laughs> yeah you see, made this choice yeah we call it the old adam in in uh theological parlance that's right? the part of you that wants to sin the old adam yeah and the new man doesn't um and in baptism right so the, the old adam is is drowned and and dies and it's a daily dying and the new man emerges and rises but it's a daily emerging and rising and we're always we're constantly in this in this tug of war uh from now until until we die or until the lord returns um it may seem like a cop out but it's it's have you heard of the um i think it's an indian proverb of uh 
is it the wolves or the two wolves, the two dogs? The, the, have you heard about feeding the dog that wins? The, the dog that wins is the dog you feed is, is basically the point of the parable, the, the, the proverb. There's two dogs within, and this is not a Christian thing. This is an Indian parable. There's two dogs within each person. There's two spirits, and they're not to be confused with uh, being two spirit. <laughs> uh, but there's there's two dogs, and the one you feed is the one that will win the day. If I'm having a dog fight, the pit bull that I give the most food to is going to win. It's going to be stronger, right? It's that kind of a concept where, and this is the difference. I am not feeding my sin. The, the, the dog still snaps. The old Adam still wins the day every once in a while, but it is not because I am feeding him. I am, you know, I'm like, my, my confession to you about my journey from the internet and all that kind of stuff, right? So that's, that is a re- revelation of, of my conscience that does not want this. And that's where the distinction comes. I do not want this. Whereas in the homosexual uh, culture, the LGBTQ movement, there is a, there's a decided encouragement to want it. And that's the queering we're talking about. The real core of the problem is the odding of, of this. It's a distortion of what should be. You shouldn't want to do... I shouldn't want to rape a girl, not just because I don't want to have to bear the burden of <laughs> keeping her around all the time, but because rape is bad, right? I shouldn't want to transition out of my out of the out of the body God made me in because I feel uncomfortable with it. I should not I should learn to to see myself as God sees me. And I should want that, which is is part of the problem. You know, it, it, we are living in a in a fallen world and there's going to be and on every every single soul is going to have different wrestles, you know, different struggles. We never never say give in to those things. I mean, what what parent advocates their child just to to give in to to will and want? You don't do that. We don't we don't say you know just oh yeah just feed your desires. We, we teach discipline. Well, we used to you know discipline it. Discipl- yeah, we don't teach a lot of discipline anymore. Not anymore. Not anymore. Um, that you know the the goal of of life should be one of of character, integrity. Uh, there's intentionality involved, but what we're seeing in our society as we sort of shift gears here, as we're what we're seeing is an affirmation of happiness, which is contrary to scriptures, contrary to the way the Western world has always worked. Really, uh, I'm reminded of a story of, of uh, in a book about being manly uh, that a brother pastor wrote. He opens up the book with this little story of a uh, in you know, hypothetical World War II. You're you're a Jew, and you're in a concentration camp, and you're given the opportunity to get out of the camp if you'll turn on your friends, reveal where more Jews are, and you can get out. What parent, what father, would want to hear the report that his son thought of himself before his friends, that he avoided the pain and the struggle? But to do that, he sold down the river everybody else. That's not a man of character. That would break a father's heart. As a father, I would say I can I can speak to this a little bit, and that I would hope my son would say, No, not on your life, guy. Bring on the pain, bring on the suffering, and I'm never speaking a word about where my friends are. See, we, we're under the false idea 
that happiness is the key to everything and that we need to placate our children and listen to our children and whatever makes them happy is the solution and that then then everything will work itself out it's not about happiness it's it's about character truth it's about doing what is the right thing to do and you don't even need a bible for that you don't need the good book for that we all have in our own consciences in our hearts that little Jiminy Cricket or whatever you want to think of it as, we all know morally right and wrong. Unless you are actually clinically a sociopath, where that's the part of you that's broken. If your conscience is broken, you are clinically going to be a sociopath. You do not know right from wrong. The rest of us all have a little voice that says, you shouldn't do that. And all of these controversies we're seeing in the world they are masking that. There are attempts to silence that voice. I would love for us to be a people again that would say to our children, you, you take the lumps. You sacrifice yourself for others. You live a way that when they write your obituary, it says selfless in it. It says loving of neighbor. Because right now we're a bunch of narcissistic little kids, and we're dumb, and it's it's foolish. You don't need the Bible for that, though. That's just my opinion. <laughs> well, I think a big problem today, unfortunately, for people who are gay is they have been lumped in to this continual spectrum of yeah. now they do have just blanket queer individuals. It's a, it's a weird unity that they've been prescribed where they're all in this group yeah if you're i think LGBT some of them push QIA, against that i would imagine i think i think there's you know i've heard i don't i mean i don't know but i've heard people say i don't like to be a part of that that's not that culture is not my culture um but and that gets to another part that you know something like a sign like hurt by lgbtq culture healing here it everyone wants to focus on the gay person but i as i explained to a lot of people I would think that the gay person would want people to come to church too, to hear about healing that could help them as well and stay gay. Um, you know, there's a, that's, that's just sort of a, a stereotypical kind of story. There's a grandmother who doesn't understand why her grandson is gay. And she's devastated because little Johnny's come out of the closet and he's gay. What's the best thing that could be for both of those people, the gay Johnny and the grandma? Hearing about forgiveness is the best thing that could that could happen for both of them. Johnny could stay gay his whole life. But having a grandmother who understands how to love through self-sacrifice is going to serve both Johnny and grandma the best. See, that's an interesting take. You think that even though these people choose this life or are born into this life, they should still be loved. They shouldn't be outcast. Yeah. Even though you disagree with their decisions. Absolutely. Or how they were born. Yep. Absolutely. See, that's a big part that is not portrayed when you hear this side of the argument. Yep, that's right. Um, yeah, we need to be able to con convey the idea of love, and that is totally the case. There's, while I, while I fight against it as corrupting others and, and corrupting my neighbors and, and, and the norming of it, I, I resist that. And so there does seem to be, the, the, the media picks up on, the, you know, the neighbors pick up on a resistance as as armies opposing each other. But even in our in, in war, 
there can still be love for the opposing side. You know, I, uh, I don't know how historically factual this is, but there's the legend of of the World War One Christmas, right? With right. the wolves. Yeah. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and there's love involved in that, right? I think we're talking about the same story where the, the two sides kind of have a peace treaty for Christmas. Oh, no, that's oh. that. I believe that it happened. I was talking about an instance where they stopped fighting each other because so many were getting killed by wolves. So they oh, teamed tell up. me this story. Yeah. I, don't I, I don't know how factual that is either. I've heard this a few <laughs> times that I, it might have been World War II. Okay. That on some front, both sides were getting attacked by wolves and they were getting jacked. And so they had like a temporary ceasefire to get rid of the wolves oh dude that's getting jacked on all fronts that's an amazing story i gotta but find I have, that out i have heard yours where the, there the was christmas a, the christmas pr- the, the peace, peace time kind of thing yeah, yeah. And, I, and they played soccer maybe i made that up but they did. yeah they, they celebrated right yeah. they celebrated together i mean and then the celebration's over war goes back and now you're shooting each other and this is you know same idea kind of with like boxing or any sport really but uh boxing's a good example because you're just pummeling the crap out of each other but then when the fight's over it's the bro hug right like oh good fight in a normal, healthy situation. Well, that's kind of what's going on here. I don't hate anybody on the other side. In fact, I love them. I'm opposed to them. We're in a contest. I don't think their worldview is accurate. And I don't want them to share their worldview with others in a sense of indoctrinating children, grooming, all those buzzwords. I have a, you know, I have a, a push against that. But I want all of them to know the love of Christ too. And I think that the love of Christ serves them even if they stay in their camp with helping their grandmother understand, hey, quit judging me in this way that is bringing hostility. Um, we are called to make discernment and to judge right from wrong, which is what we're doing. But we're also called to love and to forgive and to have compassion and mercy and peace. And um, none well, aren't of... we called not to judge too? On top of that, isn't God the only one that is supposed to judge? And yeah, we just judge your heart for eternal judgment. Yeah, that you know the verse is always is always thrown out. Um, judge not, lest you be judged. That's what I was thinking yeah, of. Yep, yep. The context of that verse is it goes on to say that you take the plank out of your own eye before you take the speck out of your brother's, and so you are to judge with humility. It is not saying judge not. Period, as the, as the text seems to be in English, you have to read the entire context. What do you do? What's the what's the motivation for taking the plank out of your eye? to help get the speck out of your brothers. He says, don't, don't assume that the speck in Nick's eye is bigger than the plank in your own. Take the plank out first so that, the text says, you can help your brother get the speck out of his. So there is implied discernment that there is still something in your eye that needs dealt with, but I am now going to approach it as one who's been through far worse. That's the idea of that entire text. It's totally taken out of context. And Paul says the same thing in his own way. He says that... We, you know, I am chief among sinners. He admits that he, and, and, and he could make a really good argument on the externals too, because he was persecuting the church, church and killing Christians, right? So he makes that claim. But every Christian should be able to say or should say of himself, I'm chief among sinners. From my perspective, I know my heart. I'll never know your heart. And so I know how deep and dirty my sins are. And I can only assume that yours are not as bad as mine. I mean, I Nick's a nice looking guy. I'm pretty sure he's doing better than the pit that I am, right? That that should be the perspective because that breeds humility and not hubris. I'm not going to come at you and say, oh, you blah, 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 blah. And that's not at all what we started doing with this sign. We put out a gracious sign that that identified hurt, a reality, objective truth, but then also 
applied healing. It was hijacked to be hate, and and now we're owning it. But the no one thought to even ask what scope of hurt there could be, and that I could actually not that I was promoting LGBTQ. And I, in fact, I had this question um, posed to me. What? Or I, I posed this question, excuse me, to a member of the LGBTQ in Ferndale. Could I have put this sign up, any le- any sign with those five letters, could I put it up in, and resulted in any other, you know, um, end result? Well, he said, well, only if you affirmed our position. And that's the proof in the pudding. Yeah, I, I have to bow to this being okay. I cannot critique it at all. Well, I think that ties back into the grouping of all of these individual ways of living or aspects of life into this one long alphabet thing. Yeah, I don't know. Why do they do, I, don't I don't know why they do that. It, but it, it doesn't it's seem to me. beneficial to any of the groups because it seems like a lot of what we're talking about, it's not just in regards to homosexuality. It seems like you kind of have a bone to pick with the grooming aspect, with the trans aspect, with yeah. drag queens. It seems like you like I think some people do. They have issues with these things and then because they're all grouped together, it's this well now I have it's it's an issue with all of this because they're not these individual things. Yeah. I think that's by design, not from us, but from... Uh, well, yeah, because then you have this unified front. Yeah. It goes from maybe an X, X individuals in each group to now we have Y because we combine them all and there's more of us. Strength in numbers. Yeah. that And there's the idea of the uh, sort of the, the, the neo-Marxist um, mobility involved. That if you can lump people into groups and they can see themselves as the proletariat, not the bourgeoisie, you can then motivate them to rise up. And there's you know good understanding of that concept, that Marxist concept of of the rising up and and the taking over, continually failed in America. When you come into the middle class America, where we are the proletariat and the bourgeoisie at the same time, right? We are we are the working class, and and we're doing pretty good. <laughs> we're pretty comfortable. And so there's there's a there's an inability to motivate us to want to rise up against something. So what do we end up doing? Looking for victimhood. And this has been uh, the the neo Marxist, social Marxist uh, maneuver, as I see it, as I'm as I'm understanding it, that once you start putting them into uh, the black minority, the female minority, the homosexual minority at first, now add the letter, add the letter, add the letter. Oh, and then connect that with CRT and BLM and, oh, and connect that with the women's market. Now, all these are, what we're seeing is a formation of the proletariat. And so then the question is, who's the bourgeoisie? Well, that's going to be the white, straight, Christian, colonial type person, right? Um, so really, what what we're seeing is is a Marxism fight going on. And you're right. I mean, the bone to pick is not on, I mean, I have a lot of different issues theologically. I, as a pastor, we as pastors have a lot of big issues with these things, but the fight is not against the individual. A scripture says, we, you know, we're not fighting against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. We see this on that grand scale, this is the spiritual scale, um, which is talked about in different ways, uh, ideologically, but it is very much the church against Marxism right now. And, for, you know, even in the 80s, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Francis Schaeffer, He's a Presbyterian apologist, really phenomenal in his apologetics work. And uh, in the 80s, he identified how the church had failed to recognize that all of these are totality. 
the church wants to wanted and this is these were his examples. The church wanted to see um, the abortion. That's another one of the groups, right? The abortion issue as one thing, and uh, the the breakdown of morals on TV is another. And um, then he said, uh, I don't remember what exactly all, the, but he, he mentioned all these different types of problems in society. And his point was, these are not all separate issues, but the church attacks them like they're separate issues. He said, what we're dealing with is one united army. And the other side recognizes that. The, the, the worldly side, the Marxist side, they recognize it is a united front, which is why you see these groups always easily aligning. The church wants to see them still to this day as different battles. They're not... and and. That does a disservice, actually, to the people. If, if the church sees them as different battles, that means we're more inclined to see them as, as we're fighting against people. We're not fighting against people. We're fighting against the powers and principalities behind the people. We're, it's a spiritual battle. It's a demonic battle. And I've been focused on that in my, in my YouTube content lately. That there's a demonic influence behind this. And that's where the war is. The, the people carrying it out, they're unwitting agents. Or, or maybe sometimes, maybe they're openly Satanists or something. Maybe they're, they're witting agents. But I want to assume that they're unwitting agents, and and they're being used by the demonic forces to do their duty, dirty work. That perspective allows for grace and mercy toward the person who hates me. I can look at them and say, I don't have a problem with you. I can I can love you. We can have Thanksgiving dinner together. Or you can be gay. I don't have a problem with you. I want to fight the devil behind you. I want to deal with the issue at hand. And yeah, you're you're you know very intimately involved in it because you, it's you. You're, you're part of that. But I want to show you. I want to try to do it logically. I want to show you, try to do it scripturally. Uh, I want to try to point out what's going on from an objective place. Would you ever be able to accept them without the desire to change their nature? Yeah. Are you talking like in the church? As a communicant member or personally or... Just Either. To... Just a desire to say, maybe I disagree with this, but I'm not going to to try to influence you into changing your behavior. Yep. Yeah. So personally, that's my... That's your stance. That's my stance. Um, as, a, as a pastor in the church, I want them to come to church. Uh, there, There's the hard and fast boundaries that the Lord has set. I can't commune people who are unrepentant. It doesn't matter what the sin is. If they're unrepentant, I can't commune them. It'd be like your pharmacist giving you medicine that's not for your illness, Right. So, uh, and this is what I told the girl in Salt Lake, come to church and I'll defend you. Any, any old lady, grandma lady who looks at you weird because you're sitting next to your girlfriend, tell me, I will be the first one to defend you. And why would I want to do that? Because I want her to hear the gospel. Why do I want her to hear the gospel? So she knows she's saved and she's going to learn what God's will is for her. It's not my job to change anybody. I'm not trying to change anyone. What I'm trying to do is bring the gospel to the situation. You know, my my fight as a pastor is to bring the light of Christ into the darkness. People don't matter. Like the, the the individual person is not even on the board. Love you, care for you. I'm glad you're here. Where's boundaries? And I will def- I'll even defend you so you can keep hearing the word. Because Ty's not going to change anybody. The Holy Spirit working through God's word is going to change people, and that's going to be on His timing, His way. It could be 30 years from now. You know, and we had people mention that at the sign um, in, in the church. Do you think any good will come from this? I mean, we had a lot of blowback. A lot of conservatives in town were like, man, you're bringing a lot of, you know, a lot of the LGBTQ people into our Ferndale. This, we don't want this to happen. What good are you going to do by stirring all this up? I, like, I don't know. It's not my job to figure out what good's being done. 
What I do know is that Scripture says God's Word doesn't go out and come back void. Something's going to happen to those hearts. That's on his scale, like above my pay grade. Out of your hands. <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to do the, and that's why, you know, the, the idea that my job is to be found as faithful. I'm supposed to be a steward of the mysteries of God. And the definition of a steward is to be faithful with what's been given under my charge. You know, steward is a manager. I don't have, I, I literally can be like in and out guy. I'm like, I just work here. I talk to the manager. I, I don't know. Like, take it to the, take it one level up. Um, which is, you know, it's it's almost sad for me because I know how personally everyone's taking it on the other side, on the LGBTQ side. I, I know it's hitting them in their identity, right? It's not an identity crisis for me, obviously. Like my, my point of contest here is not at the personal level. And so I feel hard about, or horrible about that. It hurts my heart that, that I know they're hurting from this on the personal level when I'm fighting against the demons behind them. I, I recognize that, and that's, that pains me. It pains everyone at the church that that's the situation. And, and we do try, and we are trying to find ways of showing love uh, in, in a way where it'll communicate to the world, even because that's a loaded word and it's unknown now. Everyone uses it. I love my Snickers bar. I love my wife, whatever. Um, but that is one of our goals is to show love to people. We're not out to make enemies. We're not out to set the world on fire and, what we're out to do is speak truth. And we still hold to this day. I'm still baffled by how people say it's hateful. Um, unless, unless they just have a preconceived notion that the church just hates people and that we can't disagree. Well, I think they interpret that the belief that what they're doing is fundamentally a sin is threatening because yeah. From their perspective, this is how they were born. This is how God created them. This yeah. is how he wants them to be. And so there's that friction. Do you think that on that path of friction, and especially with the prevalence of the topic of abortion and the church's stance on that, and then stack on the stance on gay marriage and the declining membership in churches, do you think that in opposing these things, the church is going to drive itself into extinction? No, I think the opposing of them is actually what's going to save the church. The churches that are in decline, uh, well, we're all in decline uh, statistically, but the churches that are, are closing and, and, and failing faster are the ones that are trying to affirm and bring in and keep up with the culture. The churches that are standing on the Word of God are are still alive and, and thriving. They're maybe not booming, but they're strong. And and that gets to the—I I kind of mentioned that this is a, a long— Thing that's been going on since you know the, the rise of the boomer generation. That was the first generation where you know they had they had mobility. We had the highway system. They had you know cars that were more than just these big old tanks. They had their hot rods. They had their muscle car. I mean, the, the Mustang came out. What the first Mustang was sixty four or something like that. So I mean, and, and that was really oriented toward the boomer generation. They didn't want. They grew up and they didn't want to drive dad's big old tank. Right. They wanted something that was zippy and fun and and in fact it was meant to be kind of like our foreign cars now where they're meant to like be affordable you know they're sporty and they're fun how funny is that <laughs> yeah um so you had that and you had you had the uh the explosion of radio and, and communication our internet back then right radio and, and tv um and at this you know you, so you're seeing an, uh, for the first time a generation of people living 
fully their entire lives in this modern world we're, we're in, that we take for granted. And, and they grew up, and they had been catered to, and they had been given all these wonderful luxuries. Not, not, not like spoiled. Not, it wasn't you know, a bad thing. It was a post-war economic boom. We were doing great, and we had just come of age as a country. And now we had these children, and, and, and their parents fought for it. They, they, they went to war. And, and so they gave them as much as they could, and they, and they blessed them. And we also have the you know, moving from the agricultural community to the, to the urban community. The, the kids are, the boomer generation is flocking to the city and things like this. And on the, on the church front of this, they're moving out of churches. So you're seeing a decline as mobility is taking, you know, the, the farmer's kid is going off to college. He's no longer in that local parish. He's now changed. And if he goes off to college and he doesn't get in that parish, what's going to happen? He's not going to be there either. And that's what's going on. When, when the kids would leave, they're, they're not finding church homes because they're young kids and they're doing the college thing. Well, what kind of college thing are they doing? They're doing it's the rise of, of all the different feminists and all this different stuff. So they're getting caught up in the world movements. And meanwhile, on the church front, we're catering to their every will. This is the rise of the contemporary worship movement. This is where the old liturgies, the things that we still hold true in, in my circles and we still have at St. Mark, they're being swept away because they're old, stuffy, boring. The kids don't like them. You know, the kids have Fender guitars now, Pastor. We're not pipe organs. we got to keep up with the times. Kids are, are cooler now and hipper now. And so you see innovation for the first time, really, in 2,000 years, entering into the Western church. And the, the Eastern church, Eastern Orthodox, they didn't have this problem they're not part of this Western world of ours. And so the, the boomers as people around, you know, in between our ages are and younger are being fed whatever they want. The church becomes a marketing scheme chasing them, which is part of this problem of the, the view that the church is always, the number one thing we want to do is reach people at whatever cost. No, we want to reach people with the truth. I'm not going to turn you into an idol the idol of evangelism doesn't exist in the, in the true church. Yes, I want to reach as many people as possible, but I'm not under any sort of uh, you know, delusion that if I change what we're doing, you're going to like it. And what we found since the, the rise of the boomers, and, and now even worse with down to the millennials and everything, the more you change the church and, it's, and the way it looks and the way it practices, the more it reflects to the, to the generation that, that you're seeking— is that you don't stand for anything. They see the constant revolving of, of practice, changing of practice, as, as equating to a constant changing of doctrine behind the practice, because lex orandi, lex credendi, as you, as you practice, as you believe, uh, as you worship, as you believe. Um, and it's true. So the decline has actually been because we hitched our wagon to the, the current stream. Current stream was you know, going urban from agricultural. Then the current stream was, you know, feminism. We saw this women's suffrage movement and changes happened then, you know, with the rise of feminism and second wave and third wave and this sort of thing. And now uh, that we brought in praise bands, drum kits. I mean, it can be, it can be as l simple things as that, right? Uh, screens, uh, instead of, you know, screens blocking the altar or whatever. And we made it look like a, a, a performance. We, we changed so much. And every single time we made a change, we saw a drop in attendance. 
And not because not only are we not reaching the people who would rather just be at a real concert and not some church concert, I mean, they want to see Pink Floyd, not some guys in the garage trying to play Pink Floyd. They don't want a cover band. They want to go to the real thing. But not only, but we changed the liturgy. We changed the, the church vibe. So we're not reaching our target audience, but we're also now doing this new novel thing. And so Grandma Schmidt is leaving because that's not the church she grew up in. She doesn't want to be a part of that. It's weird. So we're losing them on both ends. We're bleeding out both sides. And then the what the provincial wisdom has been is to keep on changing. <laughs> and so we keep seeing a decline. Well, I think it's making the wrong changes. Yep. When I was living in Sacramento, I went to this church a couple of times with my sister, and they had a band and they had the screens. And it was actually an incredible experience because <laughs> the band was made up of people of the church, and it was a great band. Yeah. They could really play in the singer up there was incredible, and so it was something you look forward to before service was sure. they would play. But a big problem today is that some of these ideas that are in a fundamental contrast to beliefs in the church, like abortion or gay marriage, are supported by most Americans. And if that continues to track up, how does that translate? Because you are in... A, a fundamental place of friction with the church, unless the church bends. Yeah. So what we're seeing is, or what we will see, is really a, a sorting of the wheat from the chaff, to use biblical language. Uh, we lived through a period of of uh, nominal Christian-ness, um, where you know, you'd go to church because that's where you could make contacts for work. You know, you'd rub elbows with your neighbors and then when you needed to, you know, get a get an account, you already knew the guy, that kind of thing. So we lived through that cultural parallel where the church and the culture were running parallel with each other, and it was beneficial. Um, and now we're entering the season where the people who will be in church will be the ones who really want to be there. And I think we might see a diminishing uh, on the periphery where where churches that are trying to keep up are going to continue to go woke and go broke. And what that's going to end up doing is the stragglers who are still holding on are going to be, you know, they're going to navigate toward the where the one that still survived because it didn't go woke. And so that church will be fine. It'll be okay. It'll keep maintaining and while the culture keeps shifting. And then hopefully, prayerfully, we'll see a, a pendulum swing and it'll come back around and um, we won't just, you know, we won't end up fed to lions and stuff, but... <laughs> That would be a good outcome, us not being fed to lions. That would be good, right? <laughs> okay, well, Ty, I appreciated this conversation. It Man, was a lot this, of fun this sitting went and great. To you. And yeah, let me apologize for not clarifying very well the uh, the law and the gospel thing there. Oh, no so, worries. Thanks. I'm only, I'm still in Exodus, so we'll have to do this again once I get a little bit further. Yeah, and uh, next time I'll, I'll, uh, I can come prepared to talk about that. That'd be great. Okay. So, do you want to plug again where people can find you, where they can find Cross Defense, all your stuff? Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, so the the church here locally is stmarksferndale.com, and you can actually find Cross Defense archived there, but uh, Cross Defense can also be found at kfuo.org or anywhere where podcasts are listened to. And uh, we talk about current cultural topics from a Christian perspective, and the, the tagline is equipping the mind, exciting the imagination, and comforting the soul with God's Word. So... Um, yeah, we'd love to have people come by. StMarksFerndale.com and St. Mark in Ferndale is the location. You heard me say I don't like Zoom. I don't like Internet. So come in person. It's much better. Okay. Well, Ty, thank Thanks, you. Nicholas. I really appreciate this. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks, brother. Thanks.